Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity and femininity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a wife and mother, a thought leader and a speaker, a best-selling author, and a friend. For her second appearance on the Renaissance of Men podcast, please welcome back Alison Armstrong. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. The book of Hebrews famously says in the King James Version, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you'll permit me, I'd like to look more closely at three words from this passage. Substance, evidence, and seen. First, substance. The online etymology dictionary, one of my favorite resources, says this word comes from two parts, sub meaning under, and stare to stand, which itself comes from the older root sta meaning to set down, make, or be firm. So we can think of substance as the firm foundation beneath something. The first use of the word was recorded around the year 1300, but it wasn't until the 1400s that substance came to mean something material, which is the way we think of it today. Because originally, the word had a purely spiritual connotation. It's the Latin version of a Greek word, ousia, which means the essence of a thing. So, in the original definition of the word, the essential, even spiritual nature of something is its substance. Evidence is a bit easier. In late Latin, the word evidentia simply meant proof. Now, I know that other translations of this passage render substance and evidence using different terms, but all the translations I've found agree on the final word, see or seen, which in Middle English and Old English meant to become aware of by means of the eye, but it also meant to perceive mentally, understand, or experience. And with all these pieces firmly in hand, let's put them back together again in a new way to reveal the meaning of this verse, whose beauty, like so many good things, is hidden in plain sight. Once again, here's the verse. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Here's another way of looking at that. Things we hope for that we can't behold with our eyes or even understand prove their existence to us by their essence, which is faith. Do you see it? We're used to thinking of faith as applying to things yet to come in the future. But the author of Hebrews says the opposite. Faith describes things that already are. We just can't see them yet. Faith doesn't look forward to the day when more proof will be provided of the things we hope for. Faith itself is the proof. I've always been a man of faith. As far back as I can remember, it was a part of me, like my blue eyes. And over the past couple years, as I've continued working on the Renaissance of Men, my faith has only grown. Because the very name of this podcast, The Renaissance of Men, was itself a statement of faith. 
In 2020, when I coined the term, I was describing something that I believed existed, and I was setting out to convince others that it existed too. The substance of the Renaissance was only partially my direct experience. In fact, much more of the substance was actually faith. And now that thousands of you are listening today and are dropping other labels of the men's movement in favor of the term Renaissance, is evidence we can all behold with our eyes that the Renaissance is real. But the Renaissance has expanded. It's no longer just men. While I can't get demographic data on my podcast listeners, almost 40% of my near 10,000 followers on Instagram are women. And that's saying something because in March or April, which was the last time I checked, the percentage was, and this is real, just 8%. So something is happening, and that something, I think, is driven in part by my new faith, which isn't just my faith, but so many others. That faith is in what I call the Great Reconciliation. The Great Reconciliation is the product of the Renaissance of men and the Renaissance of women. Someone once joked with me about the Great Reconciliation. He said, when a man Renaissance and a woman Renaissance love each other very much. That's about right. When our desire to be together outweighs our habits of being apart. When our longing for each other overpowers the distance between us. And when the truth we hear in our hearts cries out louder than the slander we hear in our ears, the Great Reconciliation begins. In fact, it has already begun. For almost two years now, that has been my faith. That faith has been the substance of the Great Reconciliation, as it waited unseen. But I've never been alone in that faith. Not ever. In fact, I think it's fair to say one woman held it first before any of us came around. Which brings me to my guest this week, who I think to anyone who knows me and anyone who follows me and everyone listening needs no introduction. But just in case some of you do, man, am I excited for you. Her name is Alison Armstrong, and she's a best-selling author, international speaker, seminar host, and thought leader. More than three decades ago, in 1991, she set out to study men quote, to find out how I was bringing out the worst in them and hopefully how to bring out the best. And she succeeded. Wildly. The ripples have been significant. In fact, I'd even reckon that Allison is one of the most influential figures that the men's movement has never heard of. Maybe you know the name Dennis Prager, the famous radio host, author, and the founder of PragerU. Allison has been appearing on his radio show since 2004 and has been the only recurring guest on the weekly Male Female Hour since its inception. Her most recent appearance was in September. And maybe you've heard of Tony Robbins, just the most famous and successful motivational speaker in the world. Tony teaches Allison's material too. Throw in her seminars, online programs, intensives, and more. And I think it's safe to say that Allison has reached millions. Faith is indeed the substance of things hoped for. But to me, Allison's most important contributions have been her books, The Keys to the Kingdom and The Queen's Code. These books tell the story of an elderly woman, a grandmother named Claudia, and her deep desire to pass on generations' worth of inherited wisdom about men and women before it's too late. Claudia meets Karen, a schoolteacher, and in the second book, Claudia's granddaughter Kimberly comes along, and together they embark on a journey of unlearning the lies and mistaken beliefs they held about men, themselves, and society, and relearning the truth. As you may have heard me say before, the truth is medicine. Because through conversation, more than just the lives of these three ladies are transformed. So are the men in their lives, including Mike, Karen's husband, Raul and Jack, Kimberly's co-workers, plus Bert, Claudia's husband, not to mention an entire office, school classroom, 
and me. Because I read these books in summer 2018, right at the moment when I was discovering the men's movement was much larger than I realized. And as I was reading Rollo Tomasi, Jack Donovan, and John Eldridge, binge listening to Ryan Mickler and Jordan Peterson, and doing 31 Days to Masculinity with Zach Small, I also found Allison's books and saw myself reflected in them at a resolution I still find striking. It's quite a thing to realize that a woman has as many good things to say about men as men do, and perhaps even more. But that's the Allison Armstrong. She's quite a thing as well. And now, almost nine years after publishing The Queen's Code in print, she's finally released it in audiobook version, read in her voice. And not a moment too soon. Because whether or not people know to call it that, the great reconciliation is happening. Like the Renaissance of Men, I didn't start it. I just paddled out into the ocean and, like you, found myself suddenly standing on the sloping surface of a growing wave. And at this moment, God's timing, of course, the Queen's Code audiobook is here to help us all hear and, most importantly, feel the way we could be as women and as men together. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In our conversation, Allison and I discussed her journey to write and record the Queen's Code, the difference between needing and being needy, how Allison used to treat men at parties long before she wrote the Queen's Code, the importance of discovering our ultimatums or the things in relationship we're not willing to live without, why we should all go a bit easier on nice guys, my own important learnings from Allison about the Great Reconciliation, and finally, moving stories about her relationship with the man in her life, Dan, who even shows up at the very end to say hi. Like our first podcast together, which is now my most downloaded episode of all time, you'll hear the same wide-ranging conversation full of stories and laughter. This one was a lot of fun. May this conversation and Allison's new audiobook be a blessing to your faith, as they have been to mine. And may the truths she shares be medicine to all of our relationships. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. This is a free podcast, so you can chip in by leaving a five-star rating on Spotify and a rating and especially review on Apple Podcasts. A few minutes of your time can help this episode and Allison reach more men and women. And to help move the process along, Allison has graciously provided my male listeners with a coupon code for her Own Your Ultimatums course, which we discuss in this podcast. The first 30 people, preferably men, to go over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and written review will get that code for 100% off the course. Yes, free. So, leave your five-star rating and send me a screenshot of your written review to info at renovmen.com to get that code. Once again, on Apple Podcasts, leave your five-star rating and send me a screenshot of your written review to info at renovmen.com and I'll get back to you with a code for 100% off Allison's Own Your Ultimatums course. And though on the internet no one can tell if you're a woman or a man, Allison did specify that she'd prefer to give this program to men. And the codes will almost certainly be used up in the first 24 hours, so get after it fast. This episode is also available on YouTube, so you won't want to miss it there. Visit youtube.com slash at men to use their new handle system to go straight to the channel. Once again, that's youtube.com slash at men, where you can smash that like button and subscribe. And before we begin, Allison had a desk fan going in the first 20 minutes or so of the episode, and it was rattling a bit into the microphone, which we fixed. So please bear with us. And Allison took some extended pauses to think during our conversation, which I decided to leave in. I know our efficient mode of being today 
often demands that every second be full of content and information, but I felt that it would be more meaningful to my listeners to invite you into the moments of thoughtful silence that we share together. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author and new voiceover artist of the best-selling book, The Queen's Code, Alison Armstrong. Hey, Alison, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I want to say congratulations. You are now uh, far and away my number one podcast of all time. First, first podcast across 5,000 downloads, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. It was like four, four hours long. Oh my so, gosh. And it's, it's really cool to see, like it, it, they'll just spike out of nowhere, like hundreds of downloads in a month. <laughs> like someone must share it somewhere. It's, it's really cool to see that just how, how long the legs have been for that conversation. Yeah. Well, I, I mention you a lot as well. So I don't know if people go looking at that point, but um, we have extraordinary conversations ever since the first run for the Renaissance of Men. That's right. That's right. It's a, it seems to be a habit. <laughs> well, congratulations also on the release of the Queen's Code audiobook, which I finished listening to. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I've, I've read the print, uh, the Kindle version, or read the book a couple times. But hearing it read in your voice lend, lended a whole new shade of meaning to some of the interactions between the characters, um, your characterizations of them, and, and the meaning behind the words. To really, um, It brought it to life in a, in a very different way from your imagination rather than just me imposing my imagination on it. And both are equally valid. Um, so what was that process like for you recording the audiobook? It was, it was intense. It was emotional, as you can hear my voice sometimes. It was, yeah. um, there are there a couple of things that were odd. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, it goes back to, um, as you know, I started studying men in 1991, right? Mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the scene in the first chapter of Keys of the Queen's Code it actually happened to me. That Keys of the Kingdom mm-hmm. prequel. But the scene in the in the first chapter, the Queen's Code, it, it happened to me. My my colleague, coworker, kind of friend was called a frog farmer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um and I had the the vision that Kimberly is expressing. And and then as I realized, you know, I, oh my gosh, I'm really a frog farmer. I'm a very successful frog farmer. <laughs> I, yes. I prided myself in the way I thought of it as getting men to show their true colors um, yeah. within like 10 days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I industrial not, frog farmer. Oh my gosh. I did not want to fall in love again. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, you know, I had come to the conclusion that men are cons and, um, and I wanted to reveal the con before I fell for it. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't occur to me that I had anything to do with the version of every man I was getting. I thought that was yeah. the real version, which I now equate to taking a dog and then blaming mm-hmm. the dog when it bites you or runs away or runs away and then bites you or bites you and then runs away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All those versions can happen. And, um, but this question popped into my head as I was sitting there confronting it. 
And the question was, what if men are responding to women? And, and you know, I've talked about that question, right? And it's worth listening to those conversations in your, in your, in your podcast, the one we did before. But that's really the beginning of a lot of strangeness that I'm only now coming to terms with. And strangeness. Strangeness. Like that question popped into my head. Where did that mm-hmm. question come from? Well, that's always a question. Yes. Right? Yes. And that's yeah. what I've been delving into. And, mm-hmm. and including other questions that have guided my research that I thought I thought of that question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the question thought of you. <laughs> Could be, yes. And but it but in the story of the Queen's Code, other strangeness I could never, I never questioned. Like these questions popping in my head, what if men are responding to women? And then when Greg did something that was just outrageous to me, the question, what if there's a good reason for that? Um, which led to all my research on that everybody. Everybody, man or woman, only ever does what's important to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Ever. And, and so all the things we think we should do that we haven't done, they just haven't risen to the level of importance, right? And, and that happened because Greg, you know, knocked over a blender of mine and left it broken on the floor. <laughs> Single focus to extreme. <laughs> he was trying to get, he was trying to catch an airplane. And um, okay, I get it. Yeah. And then what if no one's misbehaving, including you? Mm-hmm. Right. It was another one that popped in. And then a few years ago, just right out of my mouth, honor yourself first or all is lost. And so these kinds of things that popped in. Right. And um, so that's where my research began. Right. What if men are responding to women? And within Mm, that was 1981. Within a year of that, I had um, been asked to stop castrating men, literally put that way, um, and had done had done so. Um, seen what happens when we don't interact with men by handing your power, and then we'll talk. Um, mm-hmm. I had met Greg, right, my not yet husband, but soon to be. Um, and I'd come to the conclusion that the things that I'd learned in that year had to be shared, that I, I had to write a book, that I have to put this in a book. Um, but I, I talked to somebody about it, and he told me how to tell whether I had enough material for a book. And um, if you have more than 10 chapter titles, <laughs> you, you, you can do a book. And I did, mm-hmm. definitely, a year in. And it was shortly after that that I was um, meeting Greg's family and talking to his um, his sister-in-law. And I could tell that her marriage was in trouble. I've been watching the way they were interacting. I was watching the way she talked about him. I could tell, like we discussed in Keys of the Kingdom, I could tell he had become a king. And she mm-hmm. hadn't caught up with that his needs were very different than the 20 years that they'd been together and raised a family together and she wasn't adapting. Mm-hmm. And this, this was going <laughs> to, this was having a huge effect and it could get worse. And I, I tried to tell her about it. I tried to tell her about the stages of development and she basically wasn't listening. She just didn't care. 
And then I switched over to telling her a story. And it's just this funny little story a friend of mine and I made up um, called The Princess and the Swamp Rat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Let's see where this goes. We can go back to it. If you wanted to hear the story of The Princess and the Swamp Rat, I'll, I'll tell you the story. But all of a sudden, I, I, I kind of do. I, all of a sudden, I had a complete attention, and, yeah. and we were shopping together. And you know, girls can talk and shop, and but now she's paying attention. And then her husband comes to pick us up and give us a ride back to the family reunion, and and she's like, shh, "Damn, shh, Allison's telling me the story. <laughs> Let her finish." And yeah. that's when I got it. Oh, how whatever this book is, it needs to be a story, and. Okay. Yeah, that's where it came from. This, yeah. this, is, this has got to be a story because we can hear things when we're not in the hot seat, right? When someone's saying, you, you, you are doing this and don't do this, 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 it's very hard to learn. It's very hard to let our guards down. It's very hard to let our point of view be altered. So right. actually that, the, the next day we were driving home <laughs> And I was writing, like the story started showing up and I was writing it literally on a, a shopping bag, a, a brown paper shopping bag. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was just coming out and I was writing, writing, writing. And as I did that, which was ended up just being the first couple of chapters, I don't even, not even chapter, like paragraphs. And I don't even know where they ended up because of what happened when I came to write the book. But it became obvious as I was doing that, that I didn't know how to write that I had mm-hmm. already used what I learned about men against men badly, hurt men badly. Once I found out how you're really motivated, <sighs> kryptonite, and mm-hmm. and that I I needed to write a book that at that time I thought it was just for women. I didn't know well how much it would affect men, and I needed to write a yeah, book. Can that, confirm? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Whole other thing we can talk about, but it and yeah. I'm sure we will since you since you listened to it, but it read it and then listened to it. And so as I I realized that I needed to know more, I needed to know more about one, what triggered women to emasculate men, and and two, how they did it, all the different ways that they did it, and three, and maybe most importantly, how they justified. I needed to know a whole lot more about that. And then fourth, what do you do instead, right? Since the emasculation comes from fear and frustration, what do you do instead? How do women emasculate men because they think that's the only way to get what they need. And even though it doesn't work, they don't have an alternative. So I had to figure out all four of those things. And that's when I told my best friend um, I think I need to do a workshop in order to learn how to teach this so that I can write the book. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so we we did that starting in January of 1995. I didn't know it would take almost 15 years of doing those workshops. Before one evening, I knew I knew how to write the book. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, like I, I'd gotten enough of all those four things in all these different expressions from thousands of women and contributions of hundreds of men. I knew I finally knew how to write it. And so I wrote a book. I wrote a book proposal, right? Chapter by chapter. And this will be about this and that'll be about that. And then we, you know, went, me and my agent went to New York and we had a bidding, you know, for the, for the publication of the book. And that's very, very exciting. We'll talk about what it does for your ego, people are bidding on your book. And, and, you know, and I chose the editor that I loved the most and felt the most resonance with and, and then sat down to write the book. And then that's when it got really strange, which had happened before with Keys of the Kingdom, but I, I didn't trust it to happen again. And that was, you know, I sat down to write and it, it literally occurs like it's like this big. It's this big and it, it's right here. And a movie screen opened and a movie started playing and I started typing. And I didn't know the word channeling then. And I still don't trust that word. It seems weird to me. And like, what the heck is that? I just know that (laughs) that no one can write a 96,000 word book in three weeks. (laughs) It's it's pretty fast. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I didn't write it. I just watched the movie and typed as fast as I could. And it, it was weird. It was like trying to write a screenplay from a movie. Right. So that (laughs) Uh backwards, backwards. Yeah. Trying to describe what I was seeing. Like, Mm -hmm. like, how do you describe this? How do you, I mean, how do you describe (laughs) that? Yeah. hmm. And, Hmm. and yeah. And then it was, it was also really, you know, keys, the kingdom, which was what I knew I could write at the time years before, like 15 years ago. Well, I don't know, many years before, 2003. I, that ran as a movie too. And that's like mm-hmm. 42,000 words. And it, I, it all got typed up in like eight days. But I, I kind of forgot how weird it was. I kind of <laughs> just never. What? 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 I know. That's... This is, I'm coming more to terms with the strangeness of my life. And which, as you know, became stranger um, when my husband died. And, mm. and so it's actually been um, s- stunning. And you asked what it was like to do the audiobook. So I'd done three book clubs, I think, before that, two or three book clubs at the Shift Network, which meant I reread the book to prepare for every session, every chapter with, with the participants. And even reading the book was, there kept being things that surprised me. I didn't know that was taught in this book. I didn't know we did that in this book. I didn't, I don't remember that happening. And, and then when I was recording the audio book, two things. One was, it was so much more intense. <laughs> like, I bet. like, I just, I, bet. I, yeah, I just, conveying the story, reading the story consistent with how I watched it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I realized, 
oh my gosh, the emotion, the the pain, the joy, the struggle, like everything was so much more intense in me reading the story to, to everybody. And, and I was like matching the movie that I watched, right? And the movie was vivid for me as I was reading it, even though every part I was reading, I didn't remember was in there, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and when I was typing up the movie, like people have asked me, so how did you pick these eight characters? I didn't. No. <laughs> how, why did you have the story evolve like this? I didn't. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. <laughs> I didn't. I transcribed yeah. the movie. I did all the research. I mean, I did everything in, in the Queen's Code is validated by real life research that I did. There isn't anything in there that is outrageous, outlandish, unthinkable. No, it's all based on real research. And the characters in the story are, are just themselves. And which was then what happened that was really, now this is odd upon odd, as I was, um, as I was re- re- doing the audio recording, and sometimes I just have to stop because I was overwhelmed with emotion. And there was one particular time that I just, I, I lost it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, just so you're not distracted by wondering. Uh, it's the part when Bert confronts Claudia about how exhausted teaching mm. is for her and what's he mm-hmm. seeing happening to her. And he, as he's making, <laughs> he wants to make a deal. <laughs> as he's, as he's making a deal with her um, and telling her what he, he needs and what it would provide. Um, at the end of that, you might remember, he says, I'm not done needing you, you know, Remember that? Yeah. I I don't know how long it took and how many times I had to retake that to get through it because I didn't know that that was in the Queen's Code. And that was what I was literally screaming at Greg while I was trying to bring him back from the heart attack. I was doing my version of CPR. As watched on TV, what, it didn't matter if I could have done it right. It was a triple explosion yeah. in his chest. But that's what I was yelling at him. I'm not done eating you. <laughs> Just reading that in a book. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. And so that wasn't even another strange part I wanted to tell you. The other strange part was, and I don't know how this happens. How does a movie change? <laughs> so as I was recording the audio book, you, you know this about me, right? I have this thing about truth, right? And truth has a feel, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. authenticity yeah. has a has a feel to it. And um, what I call old brain, when someone's not present, <laughs> when someone's not present and they're just speaking rotely about something they're used to speaking about, or words mm-hmm. that don't really 
mean anything to them anymore. They don't stand out. It has this quality I call I call old brain. It's kind of right, and I okay. and I can hear it. And people aren't learning right when they're when they're an old brain. They're not learning. Learning's all that new neural pathways, right? I see. Yeah. I see. So so I just I just have this feel for stuff, and it took a long time for me to figure out that it only happened when Claudia was speaking, and I had to retake Claudia's parts. Um, it ended up taking usually four times. I would have to redo it before it had oh. the resonance of what she meant. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you what, live in that material. Well, what was strange was that I would do it the way that I heard it. <laughs> the way that I heard it when I first transcribed the book, I would okay. say it that way and it wouldn't be right. And I'd say it again. And it's still having your right. I'd say it again. And always when it was finally right, Claudia had changed in the 10 years since I watched the movie. Claudia changed. She was both more intense, more playful, and more compassionate mm. than, than the person I watched in the movie initially. How does that, how does that happen? <laughs> mm-hmm. but, it, but I kept doing it until it felt right. And, mm-hmm. and it was delightful to me to see what had happened to her. Some people might say that's also happened to me. Um, that was going to be my question. <laughs> well, that's the other thing that's odd about the Queen's Code is you know, when I started studying men, I was Melissa. I I was that awful. <laughs> it's incompre- incomprehensible. Right? I was that hurt. I was that bitter. I was that vengeful and antagonistic. I I was Melissa. And then right. and then I became Kimberly when I found out I was a frog farmer and got curious, right? Um, and Karen, I never really was Karen. I just taught a lot of Karens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then here, here I was reading this last year and I had become more Claudia. Mm-hmm. And after Got 30 it. years of teaching this material and the vastness, right? Cause I've never stopped researching. Um, so. I just kept thinking as I was recording it that I, I wanted, it just kept, I just kept hearing, I want to be there for people. I want to be there for people. And because how intense it is and how quickly you get to chapter three, (laughs) I had months before I got to chapter three in my life when I was studying (laughs) that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Folks are having like four hours of listening to the book before they get to chapter three and are asked Mm -hmm. to completely alter the way that they're interacting with themselves and others. And, and I just kept thinking, I got, I got to be there for them. I got, I want to be there for them. And I, um, I just started last week, the second time I caught your Queen's Code journey because everyone has a different journey. And I'm looking forward to hearing about yours. And 
everyone's is different. And I just wanted to be there to answer their questions, right? Just like, like Karen and Kimberly got to ask all their questions before they took the big leap of laying down the sword. I, right. Yeah. I wanted my people to get to do that. And uh, I did it over the summer and I just started doing it for the second time because it's, it's such an amazing thing to do. And, and I'm, I'm still learning from the Queen's point. That's what, <laughs> that's another strange thing. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Your third time. So, My third time. So tell me about it. Or My Queen's Code journey? Question. Yeah. Yeah. And before we do that, is there a, do you have a fan in there? Something oh, like that? Let me fix that. Let me fix that. Okay. Sorry. Okay, good. Sorry about that. No problem. Believe me, I've had way worse situations to work with in, in podcasts before. So this was, this was an easy fix. Okay. So, um, you know, my, you asked about my Queens Code journey and yeah. there's a couple, there's a couple things I want to point out before I answer that question. First is that um, you started writing and thinking about writing about, about men in the 90s. Now, most people who are in what we call the men's movement now didn't start doing that until like 2005, 2010. I mean, you had guys like Robert Bly and Warren Farrell and, and uh, Douglas, uh, uh, Douglas Wilson and, and, and Robert Moore, Douglas Gillette, sorry, um, doing it in, in the early 90s. But you started as far back as then. And I don't know that that's appreciated enough that you've been doing this longer than most men have been doing it, which I think is, is pretty remarkable. So that you've had 30 or so years to develop, which I think is what gives your work the power that it does. And, um, and it's so strange that you've been doing it for so long, but you go talk to men about like, no, no, I've never heard of Alison Armstrong, but then there's all these other people over here who have. So, you know, that's always very cool. And then I think the other thing is that you know, the, the Queen's Code audiobook is, what, almost 11 hours long, just over 10 hours long? Yeah. Right? And so you're talking about multiple takes. I mean, I can imagine it must have taken you 40 hours or so probably to try and record it. I mean, at least, you know, if you're trying Claudia over and over again, and Claudia talks a lot in the book, as it turns out. Um, I don't know. I'd have to look at the bill from the sound engineer. Oh, wow. I, I just know that there were... There were whole parts that I didn't have to do multiple takes. Got it. It, it was usually just Claudia. Okay. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it probably, I'm trying to think how many weekends did we spend doing that? It was probably about 20 hours of me recording, but then we ha I had multiple people listen. And um, and and went back and did retakes and mm -hmm. things to um, and just things that like squeaky chairs. There, there's no such thing as a not squeaky chair, even no such in a, thing. even in a professional sound studio. And yes. yeah, so so there were there are a lot of people who participated in the quality of it, oh. and you know had them um, the last one had literally Bose headphones on and she was, I was having her listen for anything that would distract people from the experience they were in. Mm -hmm. I just didn't mm -hmm. want that to happen to them. Um, right. 
had someone munching next to you with some popcorn in a movie. I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> right, right. I, for some reason, I guess I had pictured you recording it at home, but if you actually went into a, an audio, like a professional studio, that makes sense. That makes sense too. That must have been a very different experience, actually, because I could picture you at home in, in your home studio or something like that, recording it privately, but to be in a professional studio recording that stuff in front of other people must have been, that must have been an experience. I have to ask about that because I just pictured you doing it alone and being able to have your own kind of experience re-encountering and trying to embody some of the things the characters are saying and the yeah. story itself. But yeah. it was actually a shared experience in a way. Like that must have been that must have been a whole other thing. Well, it it had its moments. Um, his name is Steve Boynton, and um, Dan found him for me. He did a great um, job. The audio sounds incredible. Yeah, thank you. He he mm-hmm. was amazing. I'd never met him before scheduling to do this. Um, it, it's actually what had me end up moving. One of the things that the impetus for moving to Steamboat <laughs> was, oh. was I already needed to be here for periods of time to do the recording. And, um, and so I moved here in the middle of it based on other things. And, uh, and so he was, he was someone who didn't know me. He didn't know my work or anything about it. Um, he didn't even really follow along in the story um, in the beginning. He was just being technical, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't until later on, um, one of the times that, that the emotion um, came through. I think it was Kimberly's emotion that came through. And I, and I said, I said, I, oh, I think I need to do that again. And, and he actually said, it sounded right. Like, by then, <laughs> by, by then something had happened. It was very much further along in the book. And, and he's like, I don't think you need to. It fits. And so he, the way he listened had changed. That's great. Um, but he was present for, I mean, there literally were times I just broke down and sobbed. And, and he just, he just waited <laughs> till I recovered myself. Um, part of what would have me end up be emotional, Will, is that, is that however they do it, um, those the characters, those people exist. And um, when I was transcribing Keys of the Kingdom, like one morning I I woke up and um, I think you 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 read Keys of the Kingdom, right? Or did you listen to yeah, it? I yeah. read that first. Okay, good. Yeah, I I like it for people to read it first, but they don't they don't have to. And right. um, so that was also a movie, right? And I didn't decide on those four characters. And and then for them, those four to go on and become eight. But when I was writing Keys of the Kingdom, like I woke up one morning and I knew that today was the day that Karen was going to see the table, right? The table, this table keeps getting referred to, right? Yeah. And um and I just knew there was something special about this table, but I didn't know what it was because because I'm just <laughs> transcribing the movie. 
And I woke up that morning and I thought, oh, Karen's going to see the table today. And I said out loud, do you think you should show it to me? <laughs> and then, boom, <laughs> I saw the table. Right? And, and just, oh my gosh, right? I didn't see Kimberly's chair till Kimberly saw her chair. Uh. And... <laughs> <laughs> and to, and Karen and Bert were standing in front of the chair and she was asking him about it, right? And why he did it. I didn't know any of that until he was talking. And but what happened, what happens is is that I can check in with them. So I'm about in the first trimester pregnant <laughs> with the the sequel movie. And um, and it's tempting for me to see if I can only do it in an audiobook instead of a print book, because now I know how different my conveyance of this story is from someone reading it to themselves. And yeah. um, this beautiful woman in South Africa, her name is Candice, um, what she expressed to me in talking about having read the Queen's Code, which she did a few years ago, and then listening to it, she said, and it was so shocking to me, I can't quote her accurately, I need to go back and listen to it, but it was to the effect of, she said, Allison, I realized that I didn't read the men's parts to myself the way that you do. Mm -hmm because of my prejudice against men, that they would never be that, I think she said that sincere or that emotion. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's when I realized, oh my gosh, everyone who's read the Queen's Code since it was published in 2012, right? Everyone, which is, it's, I don't, somewhere over 100,000 people have read it to themselves. We don't know the exact number because right. <laughs> when we originally printed it, we made it possible for people to download it and print out as many copies as they want. <laughs> oops. I mean, cool, but oops. It wasn't an oops. I did it on purpose. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I, you know, I've expressed it as, you know, my goal is to be the most pirated author. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Well, I I am, and people actually ask, "Hey, how did you yeah. how did you find out about me?" And they'll be like, "I'm sorry, my friend made a copy of the InSync CD and gave it to me." <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I just laugh, cool. and when we originally published Keys to the Kingdom, we people. Um, People got a PDF <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it came with a letter that said, um, well, we hope you'll let your friends and family buy their own copy of Keys of the Kingdom. If you just can't help it, I forgive you in advance. <laughs> this is, I just would say, this is unprotected and I forgive you in advance. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many people did that, but. I'm a messenger, right? So get the message out. And people passing sure. secret notes is sometimes one of the best ways to do it. And anyhow, my point was where I started out with is I can I can check in. I can check in with the story 
And it's like they give me movie trailers of the of what's to come. And oh. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I knew before recording the audio book last year, I knew that the next book starts a year after the Queen's Code ends. It's it's been it's been a year. And and I know it starts with the characters reflecting back on all that happened for them in that year and how excited they are now that they the the lessons are beginning again. Um, mm. Yeah, so there's things that I know are going to happen that colored me recording the audio. Oh, sort of like you were foreshadowing almost in a way? Well, I just knew, but when I originally transcribed it, I didn't know that that was going to happen. But sure. now we're doing the audiobook. Now I know things that are going to happen that I didn't know, and it changed the meaning of. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's you asked me about my Queen's Code journey, and I'm actually really enjoying hearing about your Queen's Code journey, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because <laughs> most people don't really have. Well, I, I can't say that, but you know, it's a book. The, the, your books profoundly impacted me, and um, and I want to talk about that in a second. But it's really amazing to hear the way that your own books have impacted you. And, and I think that's the thing that really came through in listening to the audiobook was that I know you and we've spent a lot of time talking and I could listen into the audiobook and I could, I could hear inflections in your voice and the way that you would say things. I was like, okay, I bet that was a pretty meaningful kind of moment or hear you smiling in some ways. And it was like, okay. And so, so I got a hint of it, but to hear the way that it's evolved for you over 30 or so years since your initial being called a frog farmer. And you had told me that that was a real story. And, and um, the story about the snap shirts, right? I remember you telling me, right? I forgot I told yeah. you that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So can you, tell, can you tell that story real quick? Because I think it really, it's like a point A to point B, C, D kind of thing where it's like to, to know you now and to read the ways that you write and think and teach about men and to read the way that you, to hear you tell the story of the way that you were. Yeah. It's one of those things like, how does a person get from there to, from, from point A to point B? So maybe tell the snapshot story. Cause I think, I think it'll really impact a lot of people to hear that. Um, oh boy. Well, I don't know if I gave you this background when I told it to you. Um, so I was 17, and by then I'd already concluded that men are bigger and stronger and they'll hurt you. And so I'd already unconsciously taken up disempowering men. And, mm -hmm. and my forte if you will, um, <laughs> my forte in disempowering men. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. my forte in disempowering men was keeping men off balance. Mm. So um, 
yeah, you, you can feel yourself into it. That's a certain way of being disempowered. So it wasn't, it was rarely a direct hit. It was just the mm -hmm. sense that if I could tell when a man was on tilt, like tilt, like he's tilted on one foot, then yep. he couldn't attack. I felt safe mm -hmm. when he couldn't get his bearings, when he couldn't keep his act together. That's when I felt safe. And so the way that it manifested in 1978 was going to parties. And I, um, I had been challenged uh, by a friend to not drink. And, um, and so I wasn't, I, I, I was at a, I mean, people, 17 year olds shouldn't be drinking anyway, but never mind that. <laughs> So I, so I wasn't drinking and I would do it even when I was drinking. I, I, so I carried a, had a bottle of beer. I filled it with water, but I had a bottle of beer because I was tired of people asking me why I wasn't drinking. And, mm. um, and it was the era of, you know, of <laughs> urban cowboy and, and snap shirts. And actually I wearing, a, I'm wearing one. I'm wearing you're one. wearing a snapshot right there. I didn't plan awesome? this. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. <laughs> didn't plan it. Yeah. And I yeah, and I had a particular um disdain, if you will, for athletes. Um to me, they were the most full of themselves, the most like mean and inconsiderate, and and so they were my they were my target. And, um, and, and I think at that particular party, I, I think I got at least three, like a couple of swimmers and a football oh, man. <laughs> and I, as you know, I, I would walk up to them and they'd have a, a beer in their hand and I'd ask them, could they please hold my beer? And they would go, okay. And they'd reach out and take my beer. Now they had both hands full and I would just reach out and go, <laughs> <laughs> and snap all the snaps on their shirt. And I actually was shocked the first time it happened because these were, in my view, these were peacocks, right? These were, yeah. these were these young men who walked around like, I'm all that. And so when I, you know, ripped open their shirt, revealing their pecs and abs that they worked so hard on, I expected them to be, I thought they'd be cool about it, right? But when they weren't, when instead they went oh! like this, and they've got these two beers and the beers foaming out of oh! trying to conceal themselves, um, you know, I thought it was hilarious, and and I felt safe, and I felt like I put these. I'll spare the word. <laughs> I had a bad word for them. I yeah, I put them in their place. And I would da, 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 and go on with what I was doing. And it's funny you asked me to tell it to you all because, I mean, knowing what I know now and how, how much that, um, that, how much the posture, right? How much the posture that I interpreted as such egotism um, is really more the posture of a warrior on guard and part of being on guard 
is to reveal nothing that could be used against you. And, and women don't know that if you share something meaningful to you with us and we share it with other people that we have just revealed you. <laughs> um, and that's a betrayal for a man. Yeah. And so, yeah. So for me to do that with their shirt and reveal them when they weren't in that state, because literally they were helping me in that moment. Would you yeah. hold this for me? Sure. Right. I like caught the best part of them and then used it against them. And I, I didn't know any of that at the time. It's pretty incredible to think that that's where you started doing that because, you know, I can imagine that there are a lot of women who keep men off balance or who, who don't respect men or like men or, or have many negative beliefs about them, about men, but would never go so far as to do something like that. Like to actively, like, it's one thing to say something at a man, like, like, um, mm -hmm. you know, cut, you know, to shame a man, like in a checkout line or something like that at the supermarket or wherever it shows up. Right. It's something else entirely to walk up to a man and actually rip his shirt open. It's a snap yeah. shirt. So you're not ruining his shirt. Right. But like, right. it's another thing to actually physically interact with a man and that mm -hmm. way to, to sort of cross that boundary. Like that's a degree of like, I can't even fathom that happening. Now, again, it's, it's at a party and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, it's kind of a different kind of environment than just doing it, you know, at the, at the mall or something like that. Like, Hey buddy, you know, very different, but still that, that you were that forward about it and, and almost unapologetic in, at, at the time. I was right? unapologetic. Unapologetic. I right. And even after the third time you did it, you stopped doing it. But after the third time, was there any feelings of remorse? Like, maybe I shouldn't have done that? Or was it like, yeah, I, I do this to guys for fun? Oh, that was just three times at that party. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you just said, what? <laughs> Seriously, I... I'm going to a minute I, with that. I'm so, I'm sorry. I I said I was Melissa. Um, I guess I was worse than that. I I mean, I I had my first crush on a boy when I was seven. Okay. <laughs> and and probably even younger. My first like real crush would have been with my with my big brother, you don't think of it as a crush, but you know, sure. my brother was 15 months older than me and I just wanted to be with him. I, did, mm. I just wanted to follow around and be with him. He's, there's this amazing space about him. Even as a child, I just, even though he sometimes was so cruel to me, I just would always go back to wanting to follow him around and, and, you know, I wanted to play with Chris and, um, And my, you know, my father, my father ad adored me. He wasn't mm -hmm. around much. Um, but when he was, he was, he was so kind, you, you know, like mm -hmm. there were things I wanted to do. Like I wanted to learn cursive and at school, they said I wasn't old enough to learn cursive. They wouldn't teach me. And so my dad sat down and taught me how to write 
person. And um, I think I, I mean, I just, I just always loved men. I always loved boys. I always would rather be with boys than with girls. And, and I always had one girlfriend, one best girlfriend. Um, but I, I'd rather play with the boys. You guys do way more fun things than girls do. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> and, um, but that feeling that way made me really vulnerable. And, and yeah. also if you think of the time when I grew up, right, I was born in 1960. So I was becoming Right. So I was becoming a, a young woman at a time when when the old roles and stereotypes, which my mother was part of, right, a homemaker and the and women's liberation and anything you can do, I can do better, which my mom mm-hmm. danced around and sung in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And the the messages, right? So the message of Barbie dolls, and you can run a truck through her thighs. <laughs> so, <laughs> thigh yeah. gap, right? Barbie yeah, doll yeah, yeah. introduced thigh gap to women and had us believe we were supposed to have that. And, and, and just this, this message from my mother who was so pissed at my father for not giving her the fairy tale life she thought she was signing up for and her own intellect that didn't how women were thought of at the time do you know didn't have a full expression so she mostly hid it and was conniving and mm. and this this message that that really as a woman, you have to have a man. Who's your man? Where's your man? You don't, what? You don't have a man? You've got to have a man. Barbie's got to have a Ken. And where's mm-hmm. Skipper's boyfriend? Skipper? Barbie's little sister. Skipper's Barbie's little sister. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, but Skipper didn't get a Ken, right? Barbie had a Ken. Blonde Ken, brunette Ken, but she could pick her Ken. But Barbie had to have a Ken. So you have to have a man, but don't ever need him. Mm. Yes. And make sure he, and make sure he knows you don't need him. Yeah, mission accomplished. Yes. Yes. And but you can see the con the 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 conflict, right? You gotta have one but never need him. And and then as I started studying men, finding out, and men would just throw it, they they would just throw the comment off. They didn't know it was earth-shattering to say something like, Well, she didn't need it, she didn't need me. So I of course I'm gonna do it. In direct conflict with what I was taught and what so many women to this day are proving. Like they think that the less I need you, the more attractive I will be to you. 
Exactly. So right. we we have a friend who used this word conflate. We have conflated needing and needy. Oh, that's great. Yes. That's and great. so women are terrified of being perceived as needy, being perceived as weak and needy. Mm-hmm. And so instead of addressing that, like we started asking men, what, what does needing mean to you? <laughs> mm-hmm. And one man, the way one man put it was, needy is when you can't handle the basic components of life. Yes. Yeah. And that's completely different than never needing something from another human being, never needing help, for example, right? Or, and it's the source of, as it's talked about in the Queen's Code, the source of women not asking for help in a way that's dignified, supportive, empowering. Um, other people can win at providing it, right? Because we don't ever want to need help. We don't ask for help in a timely way or with respect. And then we end up needing to be saved because we got in over our head. And then we're pissed at the lecture saving comes with, which the Queen Codes illuminate why the lecture. Um, and, and, and it just ends up, it just ends up making it worse, right? Getting a, a lecture for needing to be saved has us, it reaffirms never need a man because they'll be a jerk right. about it. In, instead of understanding really the, how huge the difference is and what it means to a man who's instinctually always exercising discipline about a limited amount of time and money and energy and is really invested in his plans and something that he's got to interrupt his plan in order to keep someone he cares about from a big consequence that, yeah, that's going to come with a lecture. (laughs) If you'd asked me sooner, I could have planned on this and I would have been happy to provide it. I didn't know any of that. Sure. I mean, you know, but, but as Claudia illustrates in the Queens code, that, that inheritance and I think that's the that's the power of of Claudia as a character is that she's talking about nine generations of inheritance about how men work that got lost in Myra's generation, who I assume is the baby boomer generation, right? That's sort of around that time, roughly, right? Like in that in that you know she's probably born or born around the same time as you are, somewhere in, somewhere in that range, right? That there's this all this wisdom. Nine generations is what, like a couple hundred years, three hundred years, maybe, of information about men. It's even more than that. It generations used to be measured in twenty five years, and Claudia's family's been at it for five hundred years. Five hundred years. Okay, so here's five hundred generations. Yeah. So here's five hundred years of knowledge about how men work. That is the the entire inheritance is just discarded by her daughter. Like Mm -hmm. whatever, I don't have any need or, or want for it. And so it's not like Alison Armstrong is conjuring this stuff up out of nowhere. Like you've spent centuries yourself studying men and women and you figured it out. It's like, no, this inheritance, this knowledge about men was there. It was understood how women can relate to men and how men can relate to women and how men can relate to themselves. That's a whole other thing. And it was just thrown out. 
Yeah. It was just thrown out in favor of, um, I like how you said needing versus needy. I like mm-hmm. that distinction. The mm-hmm. one that I, that I talk a lot about is um, equality versus sameness. Like that's another, that's another thing that gets conflated. And then, yes. and then there's also um, strong and independent versus soft and self-sufficient. And it's that, it's that independent, like what you're looking for is not a woman who's independent, doesn't need a man, but she can take care of herself. She's self-sufficient. Right. And so I really like that you added that third piece, needy, needing versus needy, right? Because there's, there's a big difference for a man in there. There's a huge difference. And can I, I mean, I, can I talk about the independence and self-sufficiency? Yeah, please, please. Um, my, my mother used to say to me when I was wanting to be married again, so I, I got married when I was 23 and, mm-hmm. and that was the man to whom I was, <laughs> Melissa, because <laughs> he didn't do anything husbands are supposed to do. And is that, is that because he actually didn't, or that's because what you thought you thought he didn't like Melissa, well, Scott's doing a decent job, but Melissa's just cutting him off of the knees every chance she gets. Right. Well, the important part of my sentence is what I thought he should do. That's what I, yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he wasn't anything that I thought a husband would be. And he wasn't that way before we got married, but I thought getting married would change him. I thought the minister had very best. Yeah, it's amazing. And he would change yeah. into a husband. And after we got married and I told him the light had come on in my car and it needed its oil changed. And he said, you should take it to Diffie Lube. <laughs> that was my first indication that, no, 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 husbands take care of cars. That's what husbands do. They take care of cars. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's it's written on the it's written on the on the on the stone tablets of husbandry. <laughs> yeah, and um, so anyhow, when I was wanting to be married, my mother said to me, um, "Well, Allison, you may have to give up your precious self sufficiency and your damn independence." Interesting. And so the two different concepts. Yeah, and they they act and they are in the way that um, when I created the course that at the time was called Celebrating Men in Marriage, um, because it was Mm -hmm. everything I'd learned from men about marriage, and men are actually really intelligent about marriage um, in a way that women generally aren't, um, because men take commitment very seriously, very seriously, very seriously, and and. You know, I'm a dictionary girl. So as that course was <laughs> coming through, <laughs> again, with all these thoughts that I thought were my own, um, I looked mm. up independence and self-sufficiency. And, and, and women want to be married, but they want to be independent. But independent means free from the influence of another. That's not a good way to be married. Exactly. And so that's why a man will think this woman could be my wife. She has all the qualities I'm looking for in my wife. And then she tells him about something she's decided. And in her mind, 
they're not serious enough for him to have the right to an opinion, let alone a vote. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she just decided, you know, she's selling her house. She's, <laughs> yeah. she just decides stuff. And, um, and to her, he doesn't have the right to say anything about that. He doesn't have enough status that he deserves to have influence. And he, she doesn't, women don't know that when she does that, he thinks, oh my gosh, would she do that if we were married? (laughs) Because, Because to him, it's not about the right to influence. To him, it's about, we're checking out sharing lives together. We're, how do we do things? How do we decide things? How do we solve problems? What are we doing? We're upset. I'm, I'm, this is a, this is me seeing do the puzzle pieces fit together and that free from influence. Here's the result. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, m- marriage isn't about independence. <laughs> it, it's about you honor yourself, but you're not free from influence. Everything about your partner influences your life, whether you like it or not. Yes. Right? Yes. Which is why I think. People have very healthy reasons for not getting married. And, and then self-sufficiency, this is one of the things that I had to interact with women. They want a boyfriend. They want, they even say they want to be married. And they're and they have this value of self-sufficiency, which self-sufficiency is an instinctual value, right? If you can't provide for yourself, right? If you can't handle the normal things in life by yourself, you're going to die. But it all depends on what you're up to in your life, right? Once you commit to something that's beyond an individual's ability to create, self-sufficiency is no longer valid. Like you no, this, and you guys know this. You taught me this. Oh, like my brother, my brother's this amazing organic farmer, right? He goes out to his field and he's got this thing that he wants to create. He starts working on it. Um, he's trying to solve a problem and he gets to a point where he goes, oh, this is a two-man job. Mm-hmm. And he just concludes that. He doesn't, he's not embarrassed or ashamed of himself for not being able to do it. It's a two-man job, or this is going to take a team. It's not, there's no pride of self-sufficiency in it. It's we've taken on something that's beyond my ability to do, and this is my part, and I need people who are able to do these other parts, including I'm not a good team leader. I need someone to lead this team, mm-hmm. right? And so it's, it's one of the things that I appreciate so much that I've learned from men. That it's it's just a fact, right? It's not a judgment. It's just a fact given what you're committed to. And you know, I'm passionate about partnership. And in our our course, Lux, which is online, starts out by saying most people aren't up to anything big enough in their life to require partnership. And we do that so on good. purpose. We keep our lives small enough. We keep our ambitions small enough so that we can be self-sufficient. 
And it ends up being a certain, going from a survival imperative to identity. And, and so we'll keep limiting ourselves. We will have an idea to take on something and, oh, but I couldn't do that myself. And we just kill it. I can't it. do it myself. And so, yes, a certain level of competency, I would call it, in the, in the way that I put it, yeah, instead of self-sufficiency, yeah. I would, what I've said is, as because women are like, oh, men, you know, men don't like strong women. And I'm like, uh, hello? instinctually <laughs> he's looking if he's going to partner with a woman he is looking for the strongest most competent partner that he thinks he can attract and keep mm-hmm. yes <laughs> and all of yes. those parts are important right he may see yes. someone who's strong and competent but left with i got nothing to give her right because right. he's looking for what would she need from me, right? What can oh. I contribute to her? How does she yes. need me to have a better life? And meanwhile, women are concealing what it is that, like I tease women, okay, you're so proud of being mm-hmm. self-sufficient. So I want you to make a list of everything you do need a man for. Like, mm-hmm. can you rub your own back? <laughs> Can you hold yourself in your arms and comfort you the mm. way that a man can do? I mean, you guys are awesome. This came up about the Queen's Code last week because there's a part in the first couple chapters where Kimberly is insulted at an effort to be comforted, right? And then even, I didn't even notice this, one of the participants pointed out, and then later in the same chapter, Claudia is being comforted by Bert. And it had her realize that she doesn't let anybody comfort her. And she really would love to be comforted. And she'd like to ask her husband to comfort her. Mm-hmm. I mean, geez, talk about something that changes the quality of your life. Comfort. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Yes, there are many things we can be self-sufficient at, and there are so many things that we can't be because they come from another human being. Right. I, I like that. I'm not committed to the word um, self-sufficient. I just like the alliteration with soft and self-sufficient, <laughs> but you're right. What I'm trying to capture with that is this idea of, um, of not needy, right? Yeah. So sufficient meaning not needy, but I like competent as well. Right. Because that's yeah. that's true. Like we're not looking for women that are completely and totally self-sufficient because, you know, we as men, when we become good men, we recognize that we're not self-sufficient either. And that's a big transition for because many men are in this lone wolf kind of mentality. I have mm-hmm. to do it all my own. You know, mm-hmm. no one's coming for me. I got to do it all. And it's a big step for a man to get past that and recognize as you as you so brilliantly said, if you only take on things that you can tackle as an individual you're going to live small. Like you have to be able to work and live in teams and community as a man, because that's how you accomplish great things. Right. And so you have to get past your own desire for, for lone wolf independence as a man or self-sufficiency and recognize that none of us are as strong as all of us. And that's a point that I try so hard to make to men, because one of the things that I experience is that there are so many men in this, in the men's movement in particular, that are like, my version of being a man is the only way to be a man. 
Yes. And I, and that's that's objectively not true. And you can even see it in like the movie The Lord of the The Lord of the Rings, right? Aragorn is nothing like Gimli, is nothing like Legolas, is nothing like Frodo, is nothing like Gandalf. These men are not similar. But you recognize them all as men, recognize them all as part of a team. Why why are all these kinds of men different kinds of men and all equally valid men? But all men have to look like you, Mr. Content Creator. How does that work? And so, and so I I try to encourage men to get to that point where you're, um, it's interdependence, right? Dependence to independence to interdependence, where you recognize what your limitations as a man are. And you recognize that that guy doesn't have the same limitations, but he has his own. And the two of you together can do much more. And that you tie that also into, um, partnership is very powerful because it's not something like to ask women today, what do you need a man for? Snap answer, nothing, right? You know, it's like, it's, it's not without even hesitation, right? Your, your face right there, it shows it, right? It's like, well, is that true? Can we dig into that notion that you need a man for nothing? Because I don't know that, and maybe you said this to me, um, but I certainly heard it recently. It's, it's that um, men have never said we don't need women. They're, they're, you know? There's yeah. a small segment of men out there called MGTOW, men going their own way that say that, but it's a, but it's very small and that's, that, that community has its own problems. Um, but like that women have developed this belief that they don't need men when men have never developed, like I say, like without women, it's pointless, <laughs> right? What are we doing? <laughs> Just go back and get in the cave. Like Bert says that, like men would be content with caves and campfires without women. And it's true, <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, so I appreciate you're trying to break down, uh, using, using the queen's code, especially this notion that women don't need men and, and getting them to ask, like, what do you think you might actually need a man for? Yeah. And I could go on and on just on that subject. And, um, you know, you, you've met, Dan, we've been in his yes. space. He, he says hello, by the way. Um, I yeah. And I didn't know until I moved here a year ago how small my life had become living alone in that mm. huge house, yeah. right, in the country. Um and I didn't I didn't realize I was shrinking until until I moved here. And I never thought I would leave my house in the country, especially mm-hmm. not to move to a city, even though, you know, it's a huge city has sixteen thousand people. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost got a stoplight. <laughs> it has many stoplights and you know, I lived 34 miles from a stoplight and outside of a yeah. town of 295 people, right? So, um, but I got to experience that, um, and as you know, we don't live together, Dan and I, um, but I, I live in the circle of his protection. Yes. You, and, live to, you kind of live together, but not really live together. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, I think living together is full of hazards, and that is one of the things I didn't want to do. It was on my list. If I was going to be in a relationship, right. again, not 
attached to being married or living together full time. And, and so having my little house on his property in, and you've actually stayed in this house before it was mine. Um, I'm in his circle of protection and I, I call him the Lord of the manor sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's palpable. It's, it's palpable that he's right there. And my encounters with, (laughs) my encounters with bears last year, um, (laughs) the one trying to break down the shutter to get into the kitchen because I was cooking. Um, (laughs) Cooking is so good. It attracts bears. (laughs) He was a little guy, but he seems like, you know, when, standing up can reach taller than I am seems really big. And um that is pretty big bear. Yeah. So so the you know whether it's critters and um this year it's been raccoons. Five mm. raccoons so far. Um, <laughs> that we've trapped. Five raccoons, some of them timid and some of them snarling and terrifying. Um but just who I can be because I feel safe. And it's one of the yep. things that um, it, towards the end of our understanding women course, um, men who watch it can see it. They can see the, the and get it viscerally. Um, women responding to this assertion that I've made that it, it doesn't matter our sexuality, it doesn't matter our competency, instinctually, there isn't anything, including a gun, because after great guy, great guy, I went and got one and learned how to shoot it, right? Um, nothing, nothing has us feel safe from an instinctual vibration able to think thoughts and not others, whole capacities that come from feeling truly safe. Nothing contributes to that the same way as one man that you know is for you. That he's got yes. Yes. nothing. And I've, I've asked this of thousands of women, you know, picture how, how you breathe, what you think, how you feel in your body, in the presence of a man you know is for you, you're present to that. Okay, now how many women does it take to give you the same feeling? And I've watched thousands of women thinking, thinking, like, okay, two, five, ten, hundred, five hundred, until finally they're all just shaking their heads. There's no number, no number that one man, just one man and, and talk about interdependence, right? Um, That we can contribute that to each other. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It doesn't have to be a sexual relationship. It doesn't even have to be a committed relationship. It can, it can be how you're being with me sitting next to me on a plane. Like this, this young man, we were, we were chatting about a bunch of stuff. And then he said, um, excuse me, I have to close my eyes and take a nap now, but I'll be back. 
That's cute. And, and he leaned against the, the side of the plane and he closed his eyes and he went to sleep. And I just thought, where did he learn that? Where when he woke up, I asked him, where mm-hmm. did you get that from? To reassure me, you're still here, you'll be back, I'm safe. Where did you get that from? Which led to a whole other conversation about his mother. His mother taught him that. Mm. Oh my gosh. Mm. And and if you if you reverse it, it's the same thing. I if I ever had one another career, it'll be in in customer service, teaching customer service to men and how that wow. single focus attention that you have on the customer in front of you, if you just take a moment and say, I'll be with you. <laughs> I'll be with you when I'm done with him, with her, right? Just like I'll be with you next. Because when we're standing in a line and the man has not acknowledged our presence, we're having our own cable attack. He doesn't even know I'm here. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to die. And we get tense. And then by the time we get, we start making bitchy comments. And then and, uh, it's taking so long. It's all out of fear. It doesn't sound like fear, but it's all out of fear. We're just one, I see you. <laughs> I see you, I'll be with you as soon as I'm done here. <sighs> mm. Right? It's the same effect as being able to take a number and you see that that actually going by the numbers. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Not random numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wanted to say something? No, this, I mean, this is very helpful um, because that's one of... And, I want to dive into all of these topics and continue on our off-road adventure. But I told myself we were going to talk about the Queen's Code because we could talk about a, th- a thousand other things. But I, I do want to, to bring it back to the to the book and the, and the audiobook. And that, I think, um, to go all the way back to my story for reading the Queen's Code is that I discovered Keys to the Kingdom, and I don't know how. I, I found it on Amazon. I was overseas at the time. I was, was in 2018 maybe late 2017, something like that. And I read Mm -hmm. The Keys to the Kingdom first because I read it was the first book. So I'll read the first book in the series, right? And and I recognized just how true and real the stages of development in a man's life are because I was on my big four-year overseas travel adventure. I was in some sort of night stage, I guess, right? Like I was out slaying, slaying dragons. Right. And I was like, and, and that provided such an incredible piece to me of, of, of um, peace, P-I-E-C-E and peace, P-E-A-C-E, right? At the same time to recognize that no one had ever told me about the various stages of life that I would go through as a man. And I felt that I was doing something completely, you know, off the, ma- off the beaten path, you know, ir- unusual, irregular, especially compared to all my friends who had settled down and all that stuff but they had never really had much of a night phase. And here I was trusting my own instinct to say, there's something unfinished in myself that I have to go do. And so Mm -hmm. when I read that and and recognizing, excuse me, and recognizing that I knew intuitively that as soon as I was done doing that, then I would be ready to begin thinking about a a wife and kids, but this had to be done first. Right. And, and, And like no one had ever given me that knowledge before. But I knew it. I knew it in my gut, and I, I trusted it. And I, I gave up an entire life, you know, in the United States and in San Francisco and California. I say I pushed all in, put it all on the table, and said I'm going. And I did it. And that was my preparation for being able to have something to offer 
to a woman later in my life. And I knew that. And then the, the keys to the kingdom, you laid that out. I was like, I'm looking at my life reflected in a mirror. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot going, there's a lot going on in that book. Um, but that's, that's really what I took away. And I remember where that landed in, in my chest. I was like, oh, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. <laughs> right? Right. And so it was, it was right after that. Like as soon as I finished Keys to the Kingdom, I, I picked up the Queen's Code. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll never forget the experience of reading that book for the first time. Un, unforgettable. To see, to, to, to learn so much about myself, but to feel so understood. Mm-hmm. To feel so completely understood by a woman uh, and and to see so many things like the way that you read the men in the audiobook now, you nail all of it. Like I'm listening to you, you know, saying Bert and Jack and Raul and and their inflection and the tone of voice and the way that the men say the things they're saying. Like for example, when when Kimberly, I don't know, it's, it's kind of spoiler alert, whatever. So when when Kimberly says to Jack, like you know, I'd like for you to be my lover, and Jack's like. No, <laughs> like not her. I was like, oh, because <laughs> I was, I was like, oof. I, I felt that in my own body when she said that, like, oh no, oh, right. And and I remember that whole experience of, of and Scott, you know, having been many of those different men. Mm-hmm. And so I remember when I read the book the first time, that not only were the things that Claudia was teaching about men true right? Like she can say the things, but then the way that all the men illustrated and embodied the truth of them, mm. it was just incredibly powerful experience that showed me a bunch of things all at once. It showed me that, um, it, it taught me about myself because I didn't have language to describe a lot of different aspects of myself that mm. I felt were true. Like mm-hmm. the way that, um, the way that a, a, a man is recharged around mm. a contented woman like I was almost in tears when I read that because I realized how rarely I had experienced it and how true it was, mm-hmm. right? So it, it showed me these things about myself. It showed me that men could be understood by women, mm-hmm. that we're not, that it's not some, some dense fog that's impossible to see through, yes. and that men and women can actually relearn, and it is relearn how to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And it was this powerfully transformative experience for me that planted a seed in my mind that has taken shape over the past four years and, and deeply informs what we've talked about, which is the great reconciliation. And so now I find myself recommending the book regularly, like several times, several times a week, because it's had that much of an impact on my life as saying, no, we can relearn how to relate to each other as men and women. And, and there's a way that we can start that process at minimum, if not complete it, and it's in the Queen's Code, mm-hmm. which is a big thing. It's a big mm-hmm. thing to say. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I think before we started with Gordon, you mentioned uh, the acknowledgement at the end of the book and yes. my having added the part specifically about the audiobook. And um, it may sound 
strange, but I um, I feel blessed by because of Greg having crossed the veil, passed, died, mm-hmm. <laughs> left me without taking any of his stuff for no reason. Which I have an interesting update for you on one of the things you left behind. Um, oh wow. That, that you ha- that you have a film of in the for the Renaissance of Men, me <laughs> in his in his uh, Porsche, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of his passing, and because of my finally realizing, I did want a romantic relationship again. Because mm. um, for a long time I was like, no, I know how much work they take. <laughs> right. It takes so much work to be brilliant, and I'm not going to have one that isn't brilliant. So I don't know if I want to do this at all. And then having met Dan two years ago and encountering someone with whom it's worth it, right? <laughs> it's it's still work. It's still everything I knew it would be. Um, yet the benefits are astonishing to me and and part of it is that conversation we were having before greg greg was self-sufficient as an identity oh interesting yes and Mm -hmm. and so our partnership was limited because most of the things that i offered in order to be of help, in order to be useful, in order to have something go faster, easier. Most of what I offered was taken as an insult. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so over the years, I offered less and less and less and less because it hurt to be interacted with that way. No. Right? Not no, thank you. <laughs> no, thanks for offering. No, this isn't a, no, maybe another time. Just no. And this oh, edge okay. to it, this really strong yes. edge to it. And, and, and I didn't know how much Dan, I didn't know how much Greg had, had imprinted me, right? He, he was the man that I had a long-term relationship with, you know, almost 30 years together. And even though I've been married before, my first husband and I spent almost no time together. We, we mm. were the picture of independence. And so being with Dan, who's a very different person in that he's always played team sports, right? Since he was four years old. He's hockey, played, right? Yeah, hockey's played, yep. played team sports and then coached you know, many, many years coaching hockey. And and it's so distinct for him what team is. And we we even have a name for our team. (laughs) We're Mm -hmm. like, hag, strong, dick, dick. (laughs) Dick, dick, yes, yes. Hag, strong. (laughs) 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 But... But there's this this thing that's really beautiful that I didn't get to experience before where he 
he is known less by his admiration of my strengths, just as I am no less by my admiration of his. And yes. so, you know, he'll come along and goes, okay, so what's, what's the engineer come up with? How are we going to do this? <laughs> so cute. Yeah. And you just say, well, you're the engineer, right? You're the engineer. And, but then he'll tease me about being um, vertically challenged. Right. <laughs> and then, but then I'll tease him back where we were walking down the sidewalk and there's an overhanging tree and I walked right under it and he had to duck. I said, now who's vertically challenged? <laughs> he remembers that one. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. But it, um, the things that we can do to, together like learning to sail right last year learning to sail together hugely challenging and he's amazing on the helm right he's just mm -hmm. cool as a cucumber and, and just awesome on the helm i don't like being on the helm but i'm a monkey right send me up the mast <laughs> well under sail i'm a happy camper right i'm just like crazy like be very agile and you know this little mountain goat on the boat and one line for yourself and one line for the boat and da, 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 da. oh wow oh so much fun right and amazing yeah and and so much fun because there's so little we we're, we're just not proving to each other you know we're just not proving yes. to each other and and although there's this funny thing i um well, it goes back to the independence thing, but let me finish what I was already saying. So what I'm grateful to for the Queen's Code is, I, is I've had to relearn it all. I've, mm -hmm. I've had to relearn applied to a very different human being. What does it look like for him? And just mm -hmm. like you were talking about, all the characters are unique unto themselves, as are all men. There's no one way to be a man. And yet there are these intrinsic qualities that are so beautiful if you can see them and learn how to work with them. And if you, if you can't, they seem like they're the reason why I can't get what I need from the man. Mm -hmm. Right? This, they seem like obstacles instead of, instead of strengths. And, um, and I, I love that you get to experience the Queen's Code from the intent, in my, in my intent of women getting to see men's motivations and how beautiful they are. And because of single focus, for example, the effects of testosterone on the brain, things have to be worked with in a certain way or you can't get to the beauty. And the same yeah. is true for women. Right? If women have such beauty, but if men don't know how much our safety depends on feeling connected, and every time you focus on something else, we feel disconnected and lost, and then we get afraid, <laughs> and we do all kinds of ugly things, um, mm. like be critical. You know, the first time I was critical of Dan, I was trying not to be, but I was really afraid. And we just met. 
<laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, that felt like criticism. And I stopped taking that a long time ago. Yeah, I think you <laughs> told me that hot. story. That was hot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I burst into tears that I criticized him, the Alison Armstrong, and just criticized a, a man. And, and then I just, I was afraid. I just confessed. I was afraid, right? And then he was tapping his steering wheel because he was driving. He was tapping it. And she sounds like that. She's scared. And she sounds like that. She's scared. Mm. She sounds like that. She's scared. He was memorizing. He was learning me. He goes, okay, mm. so how about if that happens again? I'll remember that you're scared. And, and then I'll ask what's scaring you. How about yeah. that? <laughs> we're making our first deal, right? We're making our first deal just a few hours into this relationship. And then I said, well, yeah, but as quick as I can already tell you are, you'll probably already figure out, figured out the things that scare me. But if you want to ask, that's fine. And then I thought a second, I said, but how about I just come right out and say, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, that'd be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. and and it has to do with being a passenger in a car, right? It's scary to be a passenger in a car, and in Colorado, especially in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, and but it was great because a few months later, I was trying to figure out how to ask him to not follow the car in front of us so closely, even mm-hmm. though it'd be a normal place to follow in city driving and. They're not used to city driving and have a thing about tailgating. And I was trying to figure out a nice way to ask that. And then I remembered. And I said, it's scaring me that you're so close to that car. <laughs> and he goes, oh. And he just. Amazing. <sighs> so simple. So simple, right? Just to tell the truth. But we're trying to, you know, it's a definition of strategy um, to move yourself into the best possible position before for engaging with the enemy. <laughs> oh, that's in yeah. the dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? And that's how we are with each other. We're trying to move ourselves into a position where we don't reveal any weaknesses, where we don't reveal any dependency, where we don't reveal anything that we need, which equals a, weak, a weakness, right? And so much of the Queen's Code is, is just showing that none of these are weaknesses. They're they're just part of being human and how we reveal them to each other makes all the difference in how the other person can respond. Like in that scene that you spoiler alerted, you know, Jack's reaction and then got out of his reaction long enough to look over at Kimberly <laughs> and see right. who Kimberly was being, right? Yes. Which is so much a part of the message that is not stated. It's, how we're being with each other is so much more important than how we put things. Right? People, yes. Women are always asking me, how do I say? And the Queen's Code was about, I knew I could teach women how to speak the language of heroes. But if the being, the beingness of the woman isn't congruent, if she hasn't transformed her relationship, to being provided for her relationship, to needing help to accomplish something bigger than herself, her relationship to saving her relationship. 
Like if she hasn't transformed her relationship to that, even having the words, it's not going to work because it's Mm -hmm. who we're being is louder than everything. The Greek mathematician Archimedes famously said, give me a solid point on which to stand and I will move the earth. I've loved this quote for years. When it comes to my most meaningful decisions, I find solid ground within myself to act from. Once I find that firm foundation, I know that I can plant my feet and push with my whole effort. And guess what? That you're listening right now is proof that the earth will move. But again, my first step is finding solid ground, not in the world, but within myself and my faith. And that has been a lifelong process of confronting my habits and my beliefs about myself, my past, and my future. Because as the author Orson Scott Card said, we question all our beliefs, except for the ones that we really believe in, and those we never think to question. So what if that solid ground is tied to our beliefs about ourselves, including things we've never thought to question? And what if by asking the right questions, we could find out what was true? And what if by finding the truth about ourselves, we find the solid ground we're searching for at last? Because that is my new Renaissance Mentorship Program, 12 weeks of me and you finding the truth about yourself, asking the questions you've never thought to, and beginning to push back. What would you do with 12 conversations with me? What would you want to talk about? What truths would you want to discover? And once you had them, what would you do with them? Could you build the life you've always wanted? A happy home, a thriving family, and a vibrant faith? If you had solid ground to stand on, could you move the earth? Email me at info at if you're ready to find out, because my Renaissance Mentorship Program is where I take everything I talk about on this podcast, all the wisdom, experience, and insight of my guests, and make it real in your life. It doesn't happen by magic, though. It happens through effort and courage to ask the hard questions and then live out the true answers. That is the other half, support, because what you know is meaningless if you don't do, and none of us can do it alone and I'm a good guy to have on your side. If this sounds like you or the man you want to be, solid ground is waiting in you. Email me at info at and let's get started because we've got an earth to move. It's, I mean, that's, that's what's behind the vow, right? The, the, mm-hmm. You know, I've, I vow to give up the right to castrate men forever. It's that if you take on the teachings of the Queen's Code, you can put them into your head, you know, and you can express them from your mouth. But if the person who's doing that, if the woman who's doing that hasn't had a, a true change of heart, like a real trans, a, a real commitment to transform her way of being to men, right, then it's just going to create destruction. And you illustrate that so clearly through the through the Melissa scene with Scott. It's crushing. It's it's crushing. Like to feel. I I think you know. I think um. I think Scott's reaction in that scene is is probably mild compared mm-hmm. to what would happen to a lot of men, right? Like like he's he clearly loves her a lot to respond in that way versus just to walk out the door. For example, it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and this is, again, that's the power, that's the power of the book in that 
that my experience as a man reading it and to, to learn the hero's language, which obviously I'm not going to give away, um, and to, to know intuitively in my own mind and in my own heart, in my own body, that yes, those are the words. Like those are the words that, 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 that activate me and, and call me to attention and can truly bring out the best in me and can also be used against me because I want to give my strength away as a man. I've worked hard to cultivate my strength as a man. It's a, it's a multi-decades long project for a man to get to a point in his life where he truly has the ability to offer himself. Like I offer myself to you, partner, or you, friend, or, who, or whoever, right? And, and here are the keys, particularly like a wife, right? You know, fiance, wife, here are the keys to how to bring forth the best in me. And that those same keys can be used to absolutely bring out the worst, right? Or, or to destroy. Mm-hmm. You have to have a, tra- a, a change of heart as a woman and how you, in terms of how you relate to men in order to take responsibility for those. And then you really get to see men shine. But mm-hmm. it costs you something as a woman. You can't get it for free. And that's, that's the power of that vow. It's like, how, ba- how bad do you want that? You know, how, mu- how much of yourself are you willing to give to get something from a man that you could never give yourself? And that's where the transformation comes in, that, that commitment. And it's so inspiring to me to know that there are so many women that are willing to make that commitment. Because, you know, the dialogue almost seems to be women who would never be willing to make that commitment. But I know for a fact, millions of women that are like, yeah, we're, we're, over, we're over this independent, self-sufficient thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Those guys over there, you know, they do things differently over there. Maybe we have something to learn from them and, and maybe they have something to learn from us. Let's give that a shot. <laughs> maybe there's a good reason for our differences. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, well, what you said, there's so many things that it, sparked in me um further along in the book which you referred to Bert is trying to unwind what's happening to Claudia and her health yeah. he's really worried about it and then he finally pinpoints it and and it's it's the first time that this concept of accountability shows up and it's so important and it's um it's one of the most underestimated contexts and um and one of the ways that women unconsciously reduce men um I interacted with an organization and their their job is transformation that's the business is transformation and the founder, um, the founder died and his wife took over. And when I went to be a speaker there, I was so saddened because I watched this crew of women who were all in the leadership positions interacting with men mm-hmm. as helpers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they didn't even know. They didn't even know how much they were emasculating these amazing men around them who, if they just released the accountability to that expertise instead of 
managing and micromanaging everything. Like these were these guys were really good helpers that they loved very much. <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, they're like good dogs, you know, and it, <laughs> it is demeaning, right? Yeah. yeah. And um in a course that we haven't gotten to have since the beginning of COVID called the Dance of Partnership, accountability is the is the it's the first topic in the context of partnership. And and I make fun of us that accountability has become um, there's a lot of status associated with accountability. And that the more that you're quote in charge of, the more important you are. And that one of the things that's wearing women out is we will make ourselves accountable for anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And we don't stop and think, is this my part? Mm. And and we're just we're just merely we don't even want to. We're just merely, merely willing to be accountable because we're afraid of what will happen if we're not. We don't know that maybe two steps behind us is someone for whom that would be a privilege to be accountable. Mm. And it's one yeah. of the things that women don't know about men, that that language, would you do me the honor of being my wife? Would you do me the honor of marrying me? That he's asking to be accountable for taking care of her in certain ways. And, and Melissa interacting with Scott in the Queen's Code, she has no idea what he holds himself accountable for. Mm-hmm. With his children, with her, with all the people at work that he mentors to be successful in their own careers. Like he, it's, he has a huge capacity. And she, all she sees is he doesn't take out the damn trash. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, um, I asked the first time I led the dance of partnership and we were talking about, <laughs> I call them accountability hoes and hogs. <laughs> At least hoe oh, and oh. hogging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and I, you just have I, this way of putting things, Allison. It's so good. I try to make things memorable, right? Like, <laughs> you like pumpkin hours. Pumpkin hours are memorable, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. And, dessert, dessert, <laughs> pumpkin hours, all of that. It's yes, like, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, <laughs> the, maybe that's my contribution to the Queen's Code, to the movie. Um, I think there's so, more than that. So I, so I asked. Yeah, I'd say I'm receptive and obedient. That those are my star qualities um, to all the things that are wanting to get through. Um, but I, so I asked this group, asked the men in the group, like, "What's it like for you, for women to keep taking all the accountability and leaving nothing for you? At, at most, at most, they want your help, but they'll never ask you to be accountable." And trust you with accountability. And um, this one man stood up, he was probably in his 50s, and he said, It's like training for something your entire life and then not be allowed to do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, yeah. what you said earlier, right? Like this, um, 
how you've known yourself to be all your entire life, but no one calls you, right? You've developed your strength. That's so much what being a knight is about, is actually mm-hmm. um, developing and testing, developing and testing, developing and testing. How good am I? Oh, I want to be good at that. Now, how good am I? Now, how good am I? Now, how good am I? Right? And yeah. it, it's it's awesome, right? And then after you put yourself to the test of all these things, then being a prince, you could say is, okay, now now how am I going to use this to build something? Yes. All these things that I, yeah, created in myself. So, yes, account- accountability. I imagine accountability is going to show up in the third book. <laughs> it's, mm. it's something we just arrived at near the end of the Queen's Code. And it's, it's huge. It's huge. We, um, one of the things we said is that the power and possibilities of a partnership are determined by what each of the partners are being accountable for being listening and speaking. Say that one more time just to make sure that I get. (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah. So like what they're being accountable for, say say that all again, if if, if you don't. The power and possibilities of a partnership are determined Mm -hmm. by what each of the partners are being accountable for being, listening, and speaking. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Including being accountable for letting another person be accountable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You can count on huge... me to let you do your part, to entrust you to do your part, to support you in doing your part. And it's your part. This is, this is massive because yes. I, I don't want to, one of the things that I run into writing about men is I don't want to oversell men because I believe in the best of men, but a lot of men really need to learn accountability. Like mm-hmm. that's a lesson that a lot of men, and that's part of what the Renaissance of men is about. That's part of what the men's movement about is, is about generally is no man, you like individual man, you need to begin being accountable for even more things than you're already accountable for the small, the, the very small life that you're accountable for. You can be much more accountable and take it and you can bear that weight of it. And so I think that there's been a week I know that there's been a weakening of going, going on of men that has forced women to take on accountability in response. And, and I would, I would say this is, these are the result of societal forces that you and I could spend a lot of time unpacking. Like, I don't think it's all personal. I think we're caught up in some, some historical flows that we're kind of fighting against the stream. Well, let's, we'll just, we'll <laughs> got the thinking, the thinking cap on. Well, can I say one thing about it? Because it's integral. Yes. Yes, you can. What's that? It's integral to what the Queen's Code is about because as women disempower men, Yes. We weaken you. Yes. And then we we feel the weakness in you. Yes. And part of feeling that weakness makes us feel safer. Now you can't hurt me. Yes. But the other part of that weakness has us take over. Yes. Again, to make us ourselves feel safe. It's all about feeling safe. So we disempower you to feel safe, but then because we've disempowered you, we have to fill in and take over to have ourselves feel safe, which the 
stepping in and taking over also is emasculating. Mm-hmm. Makes it worse. Withholding accountability is one of the biggest ways that women emasculate men or that any men emasculate each other, right? Or even themselves. So, mm-hmm. so the, this thing, this spiral down, right? And in our work on partnership, I start with accountability and, and we start with the first person to become a partner of is yourself. Mm-hmm. And the, huge. Yeah. And where mm-hmm. I start with, with accountability, which is one of the, what I call the 14 extraordinary choices, um, also known as 14 elements of partnership, is actually starting with getting clear about what you're unwilling to be held to account for. Amazing. Are and, these the 14 things that all have to happen simultaneously? We talked, we touched on this in our last um, conversation. Gosh, yes. Yeah, they do. Okay. And they're each okay. radioactive. But but here's the thing that related to the Queen's Code that I would be thrilled for men to do. Because what happens is women are trying to hold men to account for acting like women. Mm-hmm. The perfect person, the perfect woman. Mm-hmm. And I'm terrible being that. You're terrible being that. But this is what happens. We're trying to hold you to account for acting like a woman, and you refuse to be held to account for acting like a woman, which has women think you refuse to be accountable for anything. Yes. It's too yes. subtle. It's too subtle. Women don't get it. When a woman, when a man's like, no, you can't count on me for that. Well, then I can't count on you for anything. Mm-hmm. Instead of quit trying to count on me to act like a woman and you'll find out what you can count on me for. Which the Queen's Code is about what women can count on men for, especially when we stop trying to hold you to account for what you can't be counted on for. Yes. Which is doing what a woman would do. Yes. Yeah. But as long as we're down your throat about you're supposed to see what I see and do what I would do and do it perfectly, we can't ever see how much men love to be count onable. And for the things that men are count onable as for men. As a man or even individually. Like Yes. Like when so Greg would do this thing where he would figure out how far I was gonna go. And then he would make sure my car had enough gas to get there and back. So he monitored okay. my gas tank. Imagine 20 okay. years of this. <laughs> sure. And okay. Then, and at one point I asked him, I said, I love that I don't ever have to worry about gas. I don't ever have to put gas in my tank. How would you mm. like to, me to appreciate you for that? And his response took my breath away. He said, if you took that for granted, it would tell me that you know who I am. Mm. It, it opened up this whole other area of there are things that we appreciate about people. And it's actually insulting the way that we appreciate it. Oh, you're such a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. No, I'm a man. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Don't you get that? <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's there's this insult in what we won't take for granted, what we won't count on you for. Now, do I think we don't need to appreciate things? No, I got a whole thing on that. Appreciation is so important. But someone's currency of appreciation matters. And there are things that where we're insulted and I've experienced it myself, like that you think you can't count on me for that and make such a big deal out of it is insulting to me. Yes. Yeah. And so that's what I can do much more than just that. Yes. And so that's one of the things for men to own is this is what you can count on me for. And if you just count on me for it, then I'll know you know who I am. And that's respect. These are things that would be extra on top of what you can count on me for. And this is how to ask me for it. And this is how to appreciate me for it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then as one man said, don't ask me for what I can't provide. Ask me for what I can provide and I'll give you all I've got. So women keep asking men to provide being a woman. Like Jack starts out in the very first chapter. Women these days want a man (laughs) to be a man and a woman, to be their boyfriend and their girlfriend. How come they don't know it doesn't work that way? And men try that. That's the thing, though. Is I'm glad that you mentioned that because some men do accept accountability for being like a woman. And it, it weakens, it weakens men. They try like me. I tried that for many years Yes. and women don't actually like it. Right. That's the thing. It's like, okay, I'll give you the thing that you, that you want and you hate it. And so I can't, I can't win. Right. It's really tough. And I I do want to, I want to, I want to stay on that for just a second because there's, well, there's a tendency in a lot of men and the men's movement to look at guys who act like that and, and judge them very harshly. And there's a, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of men, the ways that men can be cruel and judgmental to each other, right? But I, I like the way that you frame it. It's that these men are being accountable for the things that the women in their lives are holding them accountable for. And so they're actually being accountable, but in this inverse upside down kind of way. It's not that they're unaccountable. They're doing the best they can with the source that they feel is authoritative, right? Unfortunately, which needs to change. And that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're, they're actually being accountable. Now, there are some men that are not being accountable for anything, and that's a separate conversation. But there are a lot of men out there that are trying to be the safe, you know, nice, you know, uh, girlfriend kind of boyfriend. Like they're trying mm-hmm. to do that because they think it's right and they're being accountable for it. It just doesn't work. And, and to be able to see that, to make that discernment and say, this man is actually trying the thing and he's succeeding. He's yeah. succeeding at the wrong thing, but he's trying. Right. And, and, to, and to ease up on some of those guys and to be able to see them more clearly. Oh, boy, you just said so much. <laughs> Sorry. There's like 10 sumo wrestlers trying to get to the door at the same time. That's how I describe my brains. All the little kids trying to get off the bus at the same time. That's so funny. That's really funny. So, okay. So I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna start with this part. Um, okay. There's a man. His name is Curtis who volunteered um, and got trained to teach our material, and he volunteered in the Understanding Woman course. 
um, I think 13 times was the last time that I knew. Wow. And yeah, and I noticed in the last few times that I was around him that he had changed in not a good way. And that mm. my sense of him was that he was a volcano about to explode. And I had the kind of relationship with him that I could talk to him about it. Mm -hmm. Like, Curtis, what is this? And what it, and it changed how I led that course because what he said was, well, after being at this course and finding out how much safety matters to bringing out the best in women, I have taken on accountability for making women feel safe. And, and I could see, I mean, it would just like, right. That him taking on accountability for making women feel safe. He was literally suppressing his own self-expression. Yes. He wasn't telling his truth. He wasn't yes. being his truth. Yes. And that's, that was this volcano that was building up. And, and I got it. And I, for anyone, if you do the Understanding Women online course, which is 11 hours of life changing, you'll see that I never say that anymore. And I even warn the men, do not take on making a woman feel safe. I know it hurts you how scared we are. I know you never want us to be scared. But don't make yourself accountable for making women feel safe because you can't make women feel safe. Mm -hmm. At the most, you can help a woman to feel safe. But ultimately, it's up to her to choose. Because from an instinctual standpoint, there's never safe enough. Just like as a, as a man, you've never produced enough. There's no instinct that kicks in, okay, I've produced enough. No, get out there and hunt again and again and again, right? Mm -hmm. And for us, we're never safe enough. We have to consciously override our instinct instincts and decide I'm safe enough and men can help us to feel safe but you can't make us feel safe and when finding out all the wackadoodle behaviors that come from women not feeling safe it has you want to be able to make us feel safe because that because you love the beauty of women and anything you can do to get it including you know just listen and respond like a girlfriend would instead of saying, that's a crock of shit. You have mm -hmm. a nail in your forehead. <laughs> yes. It is about the nail, darling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's, it's, um, yes, it's understandable. Women have browbeat into what's going to be attractive to me. What's going to be necessary to me is if you act like this, but unfortunately, the decision to do that, and then a man is suppressing his own truth, which is the source of your strength, that's perceived by a woman as a weakness, and you'll be our best friend, but we never want to have sex with you. Yes. Never. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> because yes. women respond sexually to the perception of strength. And mm -hmm. a man standing up for himself, and if you can stand up for yourself early, and maybe quiet, more quietly, so it doesn't scare the crap out of us. Then we can just perceive the strength in it and think you're so hot instead of 
betray, 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 betray yourself, and then the volcano explodes. And yes. then and and that is so threatening, right? You're gonna get a fight, fight, or freeze response, all of which are masculine. Every, emasculation comes in every one of those responses. So the being true to yourself from the very beginning, it goes back to this, okay. So if I was being true to myself, what would I be accountable for? And what would I allow other people to hold me to account for? In fact, if they did hold me to account, that would tell me they knew who I am, know who I am. It would be respect to hold me to account for that because I am choosing to be accountable. Mm-hmm. And telling that truth, including, and these are the things you can't count on me. Even if you think a better man would be accountable for it, it's not true for you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I mean, I hope all the guys are listening, right? This is not the message that's delivered to many men or that many men receive, right? Many mm-hmm. men receive the message, right? Fully or wrong. And, and I think it's objectively true that you receive this message that you are responsible men. And I think this is, this is out there in culture. You as men are dangerous. And you are responsible for making women feel safe. And in order to do that, you have to declaw and defang yourself and, and remove, remove any notion of your strength at all. And as soon as you do that, women will feel safe. And then they will want you, right? And I can't, I can't tell you how hard I did that. I can't tell you the number of times I had women say, Will, you're a beautiful man. And then completely, and then completely ignore me, right? Like I did, I'm doing all the things mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not getting, it's not getting the response that mm-hmm. I was told I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a man. And it's not getting the response that I was told I was going to get. Yes. Right. And I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I came for myself. Right. And I had the, I had the opportunity to meet men who sent me another direction, who sent me in the direction of things that I had um, essentially shamed out of my own existence. Mm-hmm. And one of the books that really does that for men, um, is the book No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert, Dr. Robert Glover. Have you heard of this book? Yes, but I haven't read it. It's, I mean, the, the entire dynamic that you're talking about with this guy being a volcano, Curtis, yes. like that's, that's, what, that's the exact same image that Dr. Robert Glover uses. Wow. Where it's like men, they suppress, they suppress what's true for them yes. and, and they become very nice, right? Yes. They present in this very nice way, very non-threatening. But the truth of who they are gets suppressed and suppressed and then explodes and comes out sideways. And Jordan Peterson talks about this as well. There's nothing more dangerous than a nice guy because you don't actually know who he is. And then I'm talking, I'm I'm talking to friends, other women in my life that are saying they, that are getting around nice guys and how anxious these nice guys make them feel, right? Like, I don't know where this guy is at. It's like, but this is the message that so many men receive is that you have to be nice. You have to be nice, nice. But what they don't say, which is what you just said, that there's no amount of that you can ever truly make a woman feel safe, that she has to be responsible for her own feelings of safety and her own innate anxiety. Like whatever, to whatever degree she has that, she needs to be in control of that. And it's not your responsibility, man, to cut, to defang, declaw and castrate yourself so that she feels safe because you can never disempower yourself enough to make her feel safe. And you'll actually end up doing the opposite. Yes. That's, that's some stuff right there. Yeah, that's some stuff right there. 
It's awesome how you said that. Yeah, you can't ever do enough of it. Um, can't ever go in the wrong direction for too long, unfortunately. I mean, you and I, this we we got here before, right? With yeah. what you call the great reconciliation. Um, mm-hmm. And what I discovered and what shows up in the third chapter of the Queen's Code, that when I was asked to stop castrating men, my first response was, well, then how will I protect myself? That's right. And then as I felt into what Ellen Hurst was asking me, I saw that I would never know, like intimately, I would never know my own power as a woman as long as I was stealing power from men. That my ability to take men's power was not the same as having power. And that until I stopped stealing power from men, I wouldn't, I wouldn't truly know my own. And yes. it's interesting because when, when we get to it, as many differences as there are between men and women, <laughs> and I can catalog the encyclopedias. There's a few. <laughs> Just a few. The sameness. The sameness is the truth of the true the admiration and respect and even really liking another human being begins with us each men and women, men or women that we treat ourselves in the way that causes us to experience respect and admiration and liking ourselves. Yes. That when we hold ourselves to what we've decided to be accountable for, then we interact with other people with looking for, with seeking what can we count on them for and respecting them for that, right? And liking them for who they are and admiring them for the ways they're true to themselves. But until we're, in, until we're interacting in that whole domain, we're never going to have the connections that we're looking for. And yes. it... There's something that I want to give to your people. Okay. Okay. Um, So we'll we'll figure out how to give it the how of giving it to your people. Okay. Um, It's a a webinar that I recorded summer of 21 when I lived here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I lived here for about eight or nine months. And it kept trying to adapt to something I needed. I kept trying to not need it. Mm-hmm. And as I kept trying to not need it, my version of being nice, right? I was being mm-hmm. nice about something. And then I would be the volcano that erupted about every six weeks because mm-hmm. I really needed something to change. And I was trying to get over it. And it was something I presented to Dan before I ever met him. (laughs) I stated this need, and then I was incongruent with it. And as a result of it, I produced something called Own Your Ultimatums. 
I remember you talking about this. Yes. Yes. And the subtitle yes. is a grown up conversation with Alison Armstrong about what you can't live with and can't live without. And it's, it's not long. It's not a long program, but it, it's, it's one that I think it's one of the most important that I've ever done because it has us come to term with ultimatums, which ultimatums are considered a bad word, right? I, that sounds like an ultimatum. You're giving me an ultimatum. And what it unwinds is the problem is not with ultimatums. An ultimatum means your final offer. Mm-hmm. The problem is people, first of all, not being clear about their ultimatums. And secondly, that when we present our ultimatums to another person is when we sense that they are attached enough to being with us to keep. It's a weapon. Yeah. We don't reveal what we need to be all in this, to stay in whatever it is, whether it's as an employee, an employer, romantic, as a parent providing for a child. We don't reveal the ultimatum until we sense the other person will submit to it because of how much they love us, how much they need us, how much they value the work that we do, that then they'll finally cave to our ultimatum. And that's why it pisses people off. Because of what a manipulation it is. Instead of of leading with them. Mm -hmm. I have a student in our Smart Singles Intensive who came to pride himself on being the most quickly unliked man in online dating. (laughs) Devious thing to be proud of. He was so proud of himself because he was being so true to himself. And putting up front what he was looking for, up front what he required, and not budging no matter how attractive he found the woman to be. And meanwhile, he was also learning to understand women and how to help them feel safe while being true to himself. And And he really prided himself on how quickly he got unliked, meaning he didn't have to go, sorry, meaning he didn't have to go to any trouble to interact with people who ultimately couldn't give him what he needed, who wouldn't oh, hold him to account for what he wanted to be held account for and what he was unwilling to be held account for. Go away if you're going to try to hold me to account for that. I'm not that man. Got it. Unliked, not disliked. <laughs> yes, unliked. So okay. they would like, like him and then start to interact and then disappear. Like, disappear, yes. And, and he loved it. It was because he was 100% true to himself. In every single interaction, true to himself, true to himself, true to himself, which is what Smart Singles is about. Honor yourself first or all is lost. And and so leading with your ultimatums, own your ultimatums, is it's the beginning of that. It's the beginning mm-hmm. of, yes, you may be rejected, but get rejected when you care more about liking yourself than being liked by somebody else. When you care more about respecting yourself than being respected by somebody else. In other yes. words, when you're yes. more loyal to your own requirements, <laughs> when you care the least about what they think about what you need, instead of saving it for when you care the most. Yes. Yes. That's, I mean, this, is, this flies in the face of 
what a lot of men are taught, which is they're not taught that you as a man are allowed to have standards, right? Like that's, that is a controversial idea. There's nothing that causes more friction in a lot of online circles than a man saying, these are my standards. It's like, no, you just have to, you just have to accept me as I am. If you love me, you have to accept me as I am. Right. And, and there's a degree in which, you know, delivering the ultimatum, that's the coercive element, right? Where that shows up later versus mm-hmm. if a man or a woman can go through the exercise up front. And I think that's ha- at least half of the power of it is to know what they are for yourself, even before you meet somebody. Like you're walking around carrying this knowledge inside yourself of what your ultimatums are. Like how deeply, how deeply empowering relationally, me and my people gladly <laughs> will receive that gift. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And then and then the challenge is is to keep being congruent. I I presented yes. my ultimatums early. And then I was incongruent in trying to mm. be nice and get over one. So I was sending these mixed messages. It was very confusing sure. to the end. That I, I would bet. blow up about this every once in a while, but in between I was incongruent. You know, the, the ultimatum was a healthy diet and lifestyle. Yeah, I remember and, you telling me. Yeah. Right? And I'd watch him put crap in his mouth, feel terrible, look terrible, <laughs> have low energy, right? But I wouldn't say it when he was doing it. I would just get upset about it every once in a while going, I told you this before we ever met. I require being with someone who has a healthy diet and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But then in between, I'd be inconsistent. Yeah. A disservice, right? Being nice is a disservice. Being kind. Being kind, congruency is kind. Truth is kind. Yes. It's vital. And that's a distinction that a lot of men are are beginning to learn is that the opposite of nice isn't mean. If you stop being a nice guy, you don't become a mean guy because a lot of men you know, they, they worry, this is the metaphor that I give the men that I work with, because I run into this problem um, often. A lot of guys worry that if they were, they pull the sword from the stone, right, they've sacrificed their own, their own power, then they pull the store, they ask themselves, not in these words, but if I pull the sword from the stone, who will I become? Will I become a tyrant? Right? That's their worry, because they've seen powerful embodied men before be tyrants, either from childhood and maybe not even like major league tyrants, but they've experienced a strong embodied man, say, crossing a boundary, even, even accidentally. And like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be that. And mm-hmm. so to, point, to paint the picture for them, first of all, that, that you're even worried about that is proof that you won't become that because you are the conscientious man who can pull that sword from the stone. But the ability to paint the difference in, in, in language between niceness and kindness really helps crystallize it. Like you won't, you'll stop being a nice guy, but you won't, you will, you will become a kind man, right? Which is, which is a far better posture of strength and being, but you have to, you have to risk something to do that. You have to risk actually having the sword in your hand and you have to be the kind of conscientious man that now doesn't keep your power locked away but that keeps it in check and knows where to use it productively. It's a whole greater degree of self-responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when, I, when I paint that metaphor for them, they get it. It doesn't mean they stop being afraid, but yeah. they, still, they still get it because they're taught that the difference between kindness, the opposite of kindness is meanness. 
And that's absolutely not the case. But no one's ever painted the picture for who they'll be as a fully embodied man, that you don't lose the best parts of yourself when you take your power on. You enhance them and bring them to reality and to manifestation. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I want to be I want to be sensitive to your time, but I have I have three questions that okay. that um do it okay so um and we and I'll tell you what they are up front. I, I got a couple questions from women that that wanted to ask you um about uh, the keys to the kingdom, and mm-hmm. then I have a I have a question about these fourteen different things because it came up in the last conversation, and I think that you've you've teased apart the pieces of the great reconciliation. And I wanted to bring it up last time, but I, I didn't get, like, it was one of those things like I watched it go away in the conversation. I'm like, no, come back. So I want to get to that. But the first, the first question that I got from one of my listeners is, in the Keys to the Kingdom, you lay out the stages of a man's development where a man doesn't feel able uh, to provide for a family and that the woman has to be patient while the man gets to the point where he can become a provider, that he has to feel comfortable within himself. And what this listener asked is, what if there's a biological component that's, a, that's an urgent need, like physiologically for her, and he doesn't feel like he's there yet? How can mm-hmm. she communicate with him? Or, or what's the dialogue that goes in there? It's like, hey, I know that you feel like you're two years away. It, it'll, be, it'll be significantly different for me two years from now. Like, how does, how does she have that conversation? What should she say? How does that take place? Well... There's a lot of inquiring to do, and it goes back to our conversation about Mm self-sufficiency, because a man being ready for something, he's interacting with his own self-sufficiency. Can I handle this? Can I deliver Mm -hmm. this? Can I be all that I need to be? Mm -hmm. There are things that become possible in partnership that unthinkable and self-sufficiency. Can Mm -hmm. I raise a child? No, I'm not ready to raise a child. Okay, but are my wife and I ready to raise a child? Do we have sufficient communication skills? Are we aligned? Have we had all the conversations about how we would do that? Mm. Like, do I have, can I have confidence in us? I may not have complete confidence in myself, but I have confidence in us. And I know she brings out the best in me and I keep rising to the occasion. And I know she has a limited reproductive life cycle. So there's some give and take we've got to get here. Okay, honey, there's this one thing I got to do in the business before I know I'll have enough bandwidth to be your partner in parenting a child. And I want to be your partner. I don't want you to be left raising your children because I don't have enough bandwidth to keep a roof over your head. I got to get this one thing done, (laughs) which then her question can be, so how can I support you? Mm -hmm. Instead of that stupid, right? (laughs) You invalidate what someone (laughs) says they need at that end of conversation, right? So there's things that are possible. Um, And then I've interacted with a lot of women because wanting to be a biological parent is a very strong instinct. And it it is endangered much earlier in women's chronological lives than women know. It's yes. why women start getting wound up at about age 29, because that's when the body is recognizing 
the, the lower levels of estrogen and testosterone, which are provided by the ovum, um, and they're disappearing, right? And so those lower levels are registered as this is an emergency biological need. And we talk about yeah. that in understanding women. And there are things that can be done if, if there's tr truly a joint desire and truly a conflict, for example, to harvest and fertilize eggs, but implant them two years later. There are things that can be done, but it's something, this goes back to that ultimatums thing. We need to have the when of having children conversation way before. <laughs> way before 30. Yeah. Way, way before, way before even getting married. Do you know, it's, it's something I'm proud of my son for, by the way. He, two years ago, he said, I'll be ready to have children in 10 years. He'll be, he'll be 42 when he's ready to have children. And he's very methodical and thinking about these are the moves I need to make now in order to be ready to do that when I want to do it. And, and so men have so many plans we don't even know about that we have to be very safe to find out about. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I would say how to have that conversation was that with, with a heck of a lot of respect and being very clear what her needs are, where her boundaries are, and have them backed up by facts, not just feelings. <laughs> Go to the doctor, okay. ultrasound my oh. ovaries. <laughs> What's my biological life here? Right? Yeah. I was so happy when I found out I had plump ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> more than I was supposed to have at 42 years old. Um, so that would be my answer to that question. What's your okay. next question? Well, just to, just to tag on my response to the man in that situation, if I could speak to him would be, there is a component of wait until you're ready, but men also can fall into a trap of never feeling ready for anything, mm -hmm. family, mm -hmm. whatever. Like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Like, there is a component of, no, you throw yourself off the cliff and you figure it out on the way down. And making a commitment to a wife and a family has the way of turbocharging men's focus and productivity. Because now I think a switch gets flipped in a man's mind. It's like, now I'm responsible and I've made the commitment to be responsible for something and someone beyond myself. And that only in that leap, can you find the strength to do that? So if you're waiting for some external or even internal thing to change and then I'll be ready, no, like the actual doing of it creates the readiness. So that's, that's one of the teachings that's going around for men. So women have a, yeah. there's a dialogue, a dialogue component where it's like, well, honey, what do you actually need to feel ready? And, and to have him say, make it concrete and a specific thing, how can I help you achieve that? And then there's there that triggers a little accountability switch like, oh, wow. Okay. That create, and that creates you know, something tangible to work with. And so that's a, that's a, you know, rather than a woman strategizing, well, how do I, how do I approach, how do I confront yes. the enemy about this? It's like, no, you can just say, and for, for the man to have faith in the strength of the partnership and the strength of his self and himself and his brothers, I think is powerful yeah. as well. Yes. Well, and what you're touching on is, is also one of the obvious answers. What normally happens between men and women it will seem like the man has to count on himself because it, because he's not winning as a husband. How is he going to win as a father with the same person? Oh, good point. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> huge, huge risk, right? He's already taken on providing for her and he's not winning at it, mostly because she won't let him. Mm-hmm. It, it, it all becomes entangled. And um, my son's father actually said to me once that he thought that it was a good thing I'd gotten pregnant because he thought he would never have been married. Okay, got it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He thought he yes. never would have been ready. And when we got divorced, it was when he actually dedicated himself to fatherhood. Yeah. Okay. It was interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, what was your next thing you wanted to ask about? Next question. Um, I have been following your work from the beginning of my 10 year marriage. Your teachings, I believe, uh, are why I'm still married. I also use the principles with my son. I always boost him up with appreciation and I do my best to not interrupt him when he talks, although this one is hard for me. What other tools do you recommend while raising a 10-year-old son? Mm. It goes back to our conversation, Will, about accountability or count-onability. And... One of the things that we paid attention to is how someone relates to an accountability has everything to do with how they interact with it. So it's like a scale, like unwilling to be accountable. We try to hold people accountable who are unwilling to be accountable. (laughs) That's the lowest level. Mm -hmm. Um, Duty would be the next level. It's my duty as a son. It's my duty as a father, as a brother, as an employer. Duty is a form of accountability, but at that level, it's always going to be only to the standard of the person who thinks it's a duty. They're going to do the minimum of their duty. From that is willing to be accountable, willing to be accountable, but it'll be under certain conditions. And then up from that is a request to be accountable. Please pick me. Give that to me to take care of. And then that, and it may be give that to me to take care of because then I'll know it's taken care of right. Mm-hmm. Or maybe give that to me to take care of because I have a vision for it, right? Because I'm capable at that. I can get the job done for the whole team. And then up from requested, I mentioned before, is privileged. It would be a privilege mm-hmm. to be accountable for that. And as young as probably four or five years old, it's appropriate to interact with young people. I don't call them children on purpose with young people about what they can be counted on for and what I need to be able to count on you for. Are you willing to take that on and be interacted with as count onable? And how could I support you since you're committed to being count onable for that? What do you wish you were interested with? That that was your job around here. You see life. What do you wish was your job? I wish mowing the lawn was my job. (laughs) But I was a girl and those jobs were given to boys in the 60s. I didn't get to (laughs) mow the lawn or clean the pool. I got to vacuum and dust. (laughs) Okay. You can imagine my late 50s when I got to work on my dad's car with him. (laughs) <laughs> how excited mm. I was to be painting the calipers on his car, the matching red. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> Dad, I'm working on the cars with you. Because the boys got to do that. 
so funny. So that's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, what he'll be empowered by is being known that he's counted on for what he wants to be counted on for. And even what he'd like to grow into being counted on for. It, it's, it's tremendously empowering to young people to be held to account. They're mm-hmm. so much smarter and more able and powerful and capable than we give them credit for. And that's the way that we must be. Yes, especially little boys. Kid, you're a typical teenager. I didn't have typical teenagers at all. I never went to that. You wouldn't. Thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I held my kids to account for behaving in particular ways. I never punished because punishment is baloney. They only ever had real consequences in life. They weren't punished. Mm. The desire to punish is deadly. And, mm. and punishment doesn't work. Consequences, real consequences, actual consequences. Like if you don't get your, if you don't go to school, you end up with a lot of homework to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't make my kids go to school. They decided to go to school because it was easier to do homework while the teacher was talking about stupid stuff in the middle of class. <laughs> 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 Anyhow, accountability. I recommend accountability. That's great. Yeah, it's um, calling calling to the archetype. Another book that you you might enjoy if you haven't if you haven't read it is King Warrior Magician Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. That's another one. It's like calling to that king archetype, even within a boy. You know, calling forth not just uh, when I hear the word duty, I think of something beyond minimum. But I hear in in your hierarchy of you know. That, that what I think of of duty is the privilege to do something like this is my duty, but yes, that there's this hierarchy of, of um, hierarchy of accountability where at the highest level, like I would be privileged to take that on, to give a, yes. to give a young boy the opportunity to perform to that standard. I mean, yes. that would be life changing stuff for, for, for a little boy, especially, yes. especially if you give him the tools to do it well. Right. And, oh. and he has a, a father and a mother who supports him in that, that, yeah. it, I mean, absolutely foundationally formative for his self-esteem and self-respect. Yes. And every word in the language of heroes applies to boys. I, I've, yeah, seen it affect, I've seen it affect a one-year-old. The word hero. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, never heard it before. Responded. The mm-hmm. essence of what it is at Manaudina. Yeah, it works even with it works even with young boys as well, which is yeah. such a profound truth about men that it, it's it's part of us, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not something that that Allison came up with, and now that all men have to be taught, and then we learn, oh yeah, it's like no, 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 you, you've 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 touched on something that's fundamental and permanent and true in in the essential masculine makeup of men, it's, it, and that was the power of it. When I read it, it's like it was like looking into a mirror, and it's mm-hmm. still like looking into a mirror, like listening into a mirror. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's, awesome. that's the amazing part of it. Like, I, and you talked about in the very beginning that you channeled, you channeled the material or it was given to you, whatever the language is, it, it's a, it's a gift. It, it chose to, to come through you into the world. And, and, um, and the proof of that to me is that it's also blessed you and your life, yeah. right? Like you, you received it and it continues to change and transform you and the men 
who are in your life and, and the women who are in your life as well, like in your personal life and me. Yes. And so that's, that's the, the surest testimony to the, to the essential goodness of what you've discovered. Mm -hmm. If I could say something to be complete, your question from the father about appreciation. Um, mm -hmm. There are different currencies of appreciation. And we often express appreciation in our own currencies. And it may mm -hmm. not register over there. So it's really important mm. to find out how do you like to be appreciated. And accountability can be a form of appreciation. Mm. Or it can be insulting. Haven't I done enough for you? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that we have to be sensitive about interacting with. Would, would you would you feel appreciated if that became your job? Oh yeah, right. Like you value me, you trust me. My job? No, it, that, was, that was fun to do this time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Give me something else to do. Something else to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, what was your yeah, third question? Third question I've been waiting a year to get to. <laughs> oh my Save, god! Really. Save the best for last. Well, here's the thing with here's the thing with the great reconciliation that I had realized. Uh, it would have been, but it would have been around when we met or after or something like that. But it was before we had that first podcast conversation. I recognize that in the great reconciliation, both men and women have to step into the circle at the same time. There can be no you go first. Like we both have to step into the circle at the same time and let go of a lot in the spirit of, of faith and mutual trust and mutual love. That it, it's not just women, it's not just men, it's both it's happening simultaneously, right? And, and, and the profound risk of trust and love and faith that's embodied in all that. So when I read that, and, and when I realized I had to step into, step into it at the same time, and when you said that in the conversation, there were 14 things, and it's almost impossible, and they all have to happen simultaneously. When you said that, I realized that in that moment, it sounded to me as if you had taken apart the great reconciliation, all the pieces of it. And I was like, oh, I want, what's that about? And I wanted to ask, and I didn't ask because the conversation, of course, we went on our big rambling off-road journey and that whole conversation and then four hours had gone by and it's like, and it was gone. And so I've had that thought in my mind for over a year now, wanting to talk about that specific thing. That, that somehow it seems that you and I are looking at the same thing and that, and that you see that you being you and, and studying <laughs> men and women the way that you do, you see things at such, a high, at such a high resolution that I haven't been able to explore. But there's something in that. There's something similar that you and I are looking at. So I wanted to talk to you about that. And, and I don't know if you can talk about what those 14 things are, if it's in a course or what you can say about them, but please tell me it's been this giant mystery in my head. Okay. Okay. Please tell you. Um, so those 14 things are in a course. Um, and I would propose yeah. to do them justice that you and I 
um, have a different time to, to talk about. And um, accountability is one of them. Um, by choice is the way I would put it. Accountability by choice, not what people are trying to hold us to account for. Um, sufficient clarity. There's a, there's a sufficient amount of clarity that's required. Um, but I want to say something about the step into the ring at the same time. Because there's two sides of it. Um, the intent mm-hmm. of my work directly on partnership, which those 14 choices are, is for people to embody those choices, mm-hmm. interesting to use the word embody, for people to embody those choices such that they become what I call an invitation to partner. Mm-hmm. So we can't make people partner and, and not everyone is suited to partner and we don't need to partner about everything in life. We don't need to exclude self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of human beings as, as particle and wave. And <laughs> we, need to, we need to take care of our particle in order to be a contribution to available waves. In some waves we participate in, and it's also possible to lead a wave, um, which is called transformation. Transformational teachers lead waves. And it... So to be an invitation to partner doesn't mean you're always going to get a yes. But until you're an invitation to partner, you can't get a yes. And so this is to your, your we have to step in at the same time. Um, we, can't, we can't control another stepping in. We can only control mm. ours. So if you step in, as an invitation to partner, and you're the only one standing in the circle for years, um, you keep being mm-hmm. an invitation to partner. Mm-hmm. But what I discovered once I stopped emasculating men is how much men are already an invitation to partner. And it had me inquire. Yes, there are men who are not. They are self-sufficient as a principle. <laughs> even, even Greg, who had that as part of his identity, there were ways that we could partner magnificently, like as parents. Um, but there's this other thing I want to mm. offer, Will, and it happened between Dan and I just a short while ago at the beginning of my five-week kind of vacation. Mm. Where, where something happened in checking into okay. so a hotel room in Nashville, yeah. where he he went completely independent to solve the problem, and he didn't know that I was standing by to help solve it. I mean, this enormous rift. I didn't just have my feelings hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was completely disconnected, and. The way I described it to him the next day was that I I couldn't feel love. 
I, 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 I felt no love for him. And I realized later I couldn't feel love, period, even for myself. A really clear sign that I was deep in a human instinctive reaction. Mm-hmm. And when I told him I couldn't feel love for you, he said, yes, I could tell. And I became an island. Mm. And so here were these two human beings <laughs> in this situation together, completely isolated. I actually piled up pillows on the edge of my bed between us. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like one at a wall. I was so disconnected from my own spirit. And a funny thing had happened the day before when we were driving to the airport, we passed a lake. And this lake normally has an island in the center of it. And I noticed that the water had fallen so low that there was now a land bridge between this island and the surrounding environment. And my remark was, wow, I hope there aren't birds nesting on that island because now the predators can get to them through the land bridge. And I just, it was just an offhand comment. Well, we didn't speak for a lot of hours, like 16 hours or something. We didn't speak to each other, sharing a hotel room, (laughs) about to attend a retreat. I'm being guided by higher consciousness. Mm. (laughs) The absolute opposite of it. And I came out of the bathroom and he was standing there and he said, can we hug? And I did not want to hug. But we hugged. And it was like two boxes hugging. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There was no warmth, no softness, no comfort, no connection, no nothing. But I acknowledged him later for offering the land bridge Mm -hmm. that he had become an island. And that in that moment, asking for a hug, he had offered a land bridge. And even though I didn't want it, I accepted it. Mm. And that was the beginning of us being able to talk about what had happened and to sort it out and to reconcile it. And we we now have evolved it because, you know, we, we play. So, so land bridge became hand bridge. When there's a breakdown, he'll hold out his hand, hand bridge, and I'll take his hand even when I don't want to. And we had a breakdown. We got back from my birthday trip to Hawaii. So I came out with something that we normally don't eat, a scone (laughs) for the non-gluten eaters, food bridge. (laughs) And, and I, It's something that I said years and years ago about in a partnership, he or she who can does. So if you, if you can say, I'm sorry, if you can say, let's talk, if you can say, (laughs) if you can reach out your hand, you do reach out your hand. Yeah. And until we do that, we won't know if the other person will step into the circle. Until we step into the circle, we won't know who it's going to show up. And that's what stunned me. When I stopped emasculating men, I thought I'd have to learn 
how to bring out the prince instead of the frog. I'd learn how to, I'd have to learn how to bring out the best in them. When I just stopped taking men's power, mm. I was stunned and continue to be amazed by who men are before you're kind. <laughs> just stop being unkind and find out who men are. And so many of you are already in the circle, bewildered why women treat you like enemies when all you want is good for us. And you don't know that how we're judging you and perceiving you, we can't see your goodness because you don't express it like a woman, which goes back to our previous conversation. So many men are trying to express it like a woman in order to be seen, but it's a betrayal of yourself and cause you to be even less seen. Yes. Yes. This is why from, from the female side of the reconciliation, what I've said for years is, is that it's up to us. Men are not the source of the Cold War. Men are not the, not on the attack. Men are on the defense. When women stop attacking, men disarm naturally. They, they don't have a need for it. And, it, and it's, it's a, a different word that I use than powerful. In, in partnership, power disappears. Another way of saying it is power enough between us that we don't even talk about it we don't even think about it there's no power struggle because there's power enough between us yeah there's no powerful power less power zero there's just us and and ability right power is the ability to do or generate or cause right there's just ability in partnership there's just ability and that's what happens when we stop being afraid of each other and stop taking each other down or when we're afraid of each other, we say so. I'm scared. And last year when I produced Own Your Ultimatums, and Dan realized what I was talking about, and he's like, okay, what else on your list will we break up over? I said, every single thing. <laughs> uh, yes, all of them. And all, each and every one of them, including the ones you already are, if you stop being that way. And you're 42 altogether. And and at one point I said, I want to run. And he said, and he reached out and he said, okay, take my hand. <laughs> and then we were talking some more and a, a little while later he goes, now I want to run. Let's hold both hands. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what a man. Uh, yeah. I fall in love with him over and over and over again. He's so big, you know, mm-hmm. and he generates being that way when I'm at my worst, which is what I realized I needed in a partner was not just someone I inspire to be great or can be great when I'm safe, but generates being great on their own when I'm my scariest and my scared, which obviously they go together. Mm-hmm. I'm my scariest when I'm the most scared. Mm-hmm. And then he reaches out to help me. He's got that. He's got that strength within him to be able to contain that, and to be able to respond to that, and to um, 
Hmm? Disarm it, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, he owns it. Yeah. So I think we should dedicate its own own session to the great reconciliation. Okay. (laughs) And I'll have some some homework for you before and I look forward to the conversation. Me too. Me too. And 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 thank you for pointing something out to me, by the way, because I I um I know a lot of men who have dealt with being castrated for, for a long time, right? And, and whether they've allowed themselves to be or not, they've been the recipients of it. And they have mm-hmm. a lot of distrust of women. Um, and it's earned. It's earned. And not only that, do they have the distrust of women, they're shamed, persecuted for even mentioning it, for even suggesting yeah. that women are anything less than perfect angels, that women have a shadow that women have a dark side, that women are unkind or unfair to men. They get in trouble for even saying that. And so, so they have a lot of earned, we'll call it resentment, anger towards women and towards this, the entire cultural moment that doesn't allow them to even say, this is wrong and bad. And so when I say step into this, and, and women, of course, have their own culturally um, cultivated resentments towards men, as we've been su- discussing. So yeah. when I talk about having to step in at the same time, I'm speaking to those men that like, no, you have to let go of this as well. But you help me, you help, and this is the world that I come from, right? That, like not, not where I was born, but like the world of the men's movement that I've come through with men who have recognized a lot of things that you're describing, haven't been able to put as clear language to them and are like, yeah, I don't even know if I, 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 I naturally, my body want to do this, but if I make myself vulnerable, or available to a woman, is she going to bring her daggers into the circle? What's her disincentive from doing that? Because men can look around and we can see everywhere in movies and stuff like that, where it's like all women got their daggers out. Hold on, well, I just castrate all these men in this new Lord of the Rings series. I'm just going to, six episodes of castrating men, right? And so men look Mm -hmm. at that and they're like, why should I trust women? But you remind me that the men who think about those sort of things is not all men. That there are a lot of men are like, look, I'm just looking for partnership. I'm just here trying to do my thing. I want to be a husband. I want to be a provider. And there are a lot of men that are already standing in the circle. And you remind me of that. So thank you for that. Because I think that there are some men that I'm trying to encourage to step into the circle. Because I know many women who are like, I'm so ready to step into the circle. But then there's a ton of other people out there, men in particular, that are like, yeah, I'm all right. I've been here. <laughs> yeah, I've been holding it down. So thank you for reminding me of that. You're welcome. I would also say, well, that part of my intent of the Queen's Code, specifically the audiobook, mm-hmm. is that one way that men can read it is once, hi, honey, we're on my last sentence, I think. You want to say hi to Will? Oh, cool. He's got to take his cold clothes off. Okay. You don't take them off. Oh, you have Snoopy on the Zamboni. Come here, honey. Yeah. Look at this face. What a blessing. You will. Hey, what's up, Dan? Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, you have a picture and be with because that pillow is not yeah, actual. You, you can fall in. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'll let you guys get back to it. Good seeing you, Will. Good to see you, Dan.
Again, just a minute. Okay. Um, I I believe, and I would love for you to check this out for me. I believe in listening to the Queen's code and men recognizing the resonance mm-hmm. of who you are. That you can also read it or listen to it from the intent to understand the source of emasculation. Yes. And by doing so, and I've witnessed this, you literally can become impervious to emasculation. You can just see it for what it is. Yeah, you can just see, yeah. oh, she's oh, she's scared out of her wits. I can handle this. Yeah. And that that thought, I can handle this, I can be with this, I don't have to mess with this, I don't have to cave to this. All of those thoughts literally create themselves. You think you can handle it? You can. Period. And and that's what I wish for men from the Queen's Code. Not only to to see the the goodness, the honor of your own motivations, and no longer let them be attacked when when women are accusing you of baloney, right? Stuff that just isn't true. Not allow it. Yes. And. That's the strength that we as women need. We know when we're full shit. And and we respect the man who doesn't fall for it. I know who you are. I know who I am. I'm not falling for that. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) Because we know we're our own worst enemies. So I'm working both sides of it. For women to give up justifying emasculating men, which is the beginning of curing ourselves of the habit and the reaction of it, and for men to stop falling for it. You don't have to agree to be emasculated. You can decline. Please decline. When it stops working, women will stop doing it. Some will. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I gave a talk. I know that you have to go, but I gave a talk at a conference in 2021 that I'm going to turn to a YouTube video about this very subject about how men can stop allowing themselves to be emasculated and where it comes from. So I'll send that to you when that's done. Yeah, Thanks. we can yeah. we can link to it on our website. We can have people watch it. I would love that. I would love that. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Alice. to be continued. We'll. We can- we'll- We'll communicate about that other stuff. Okay. And then uh, where would you like to send people um, any links to visit or social media profiles that you'd like? Um, AllisonArmstrong.com is the easiest place. It's the only way, it's the only place you can get the audio book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. We'll do that. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Allison. Mwah. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.